Hi, this is Maureen Milliken. And this is Rebecca Milliken, and this is Crime and Stuff. A podcast. You would do if you had nothing better to do. And this is our final podcast of 2022. I know. Hard to believe it's been a whole year. It is. I can't believe we've been doing it for so long. For more than six years. And we have a very special (laughs) one tonight that's made possible because the Maine State Police, their new spokesperson, Shannon Moss, um, I don't know if it was her idea or somebody else's, but they've started listing the homicides. I'll give Shannon the credit. Yeah. And so we used, used to, to be on the news. Right. So we used to have to like go through like Google and try to figure out how many there were. And now we don't. And yeah. so we're going to go through them and we may make it a yearly thing. Right. If it... Yeah. And we also each picked a couple to highlight. Right. Right. We did. But, but first you had a, you had an incident you want to talk about. <laughs> now something weird happened yesterday to me twice. Okay. It was only weird because it happened twice in the exact same place. Okay, because I live like a mile from work and there's a lot of food here left over from Christmas, like ham and scalloped potatoes. Mm-hmm. I came home for lunch. So I was going back to work and I was driving down 4th Street into the old port and it was early afternoon. So the sun was coming right into my face and I could not see very well. And suddenly I got through the intersection of Franklin Arterial. There is this homeless guy veering into me with his shopping cart he was walking down in the lane a few feet from the curb into the street right and i barely missed him so i almost hit him i had to swerve around him i honestly did not see him until like the last and we locked eyes and then i swerved around him and his two buddies were standing in the parking lot glaring at me and i'm like sorry and so then i went on my way and i kind of forgot about it And then I had to go home and give Khabibi, my kitty, her pill. Mm -hmm. And I was staying elsewhere for the week because Liz was staying with mom and dad. I was staying with my baby daddy. And so I was coming back from mom and dad's and it was very, very dark, even though it was only like six o'clock at night. And I went through the same intersection. Some guy on a bicycle wearing all black, Mm -hmm. um, literally from head to toe in black. And all he had was like a reflector on the front of his bike was riding his bike the wrong way in the middle of the lane. It was the exact same spot. I had to slam on my brakes and bear around him. It was the exact, like, the same spot, the same day. It's like, does God want me to kill somebody on this spot with my car? I know it's just like a stupid, pointless story, but it was just very strange. It's weird that it happened in in the the same same spot spot. in the same day. And and when you're talking about the homeless guy, not that I want to prolong this, but you know what? It reminds me of that woman, I think it was in Texas, who hit a homeless guy and he embedded in her window windshield and yes. she was just and she just left him there that came home up. and parked in her garage and I was, was just kind of hoping that. he would die whatever story i did recently where i was looking through newspapers that was in the newspaper mm. that yeah. i was looking at so it must have been around in the early 2000s yes it was in the early 2000s and once you make that uh, decision i'm just going to drive home and leave the car in my garage and hope he dies oh and once you do that it's very hard to go back on oh, that decision my god how but horrible that, on that no so i had just one quick thing that it's been bugging me that i wanted to say that went with the last episode logan clegg and we were talking about what he may have been doing in the woods when he shot allegedly shot wendy and steve reed like you had said maybe he was like target shooting blah 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 i had thought to say and then i never said it i realized when i was editing when that dog walker saw him 
right after he shot them, he still had his grocery bag with the Mountain Dew and stuff in it. Oh, yeah. So yeah. he was, you know, wasn't out there target shooting or something. He was on his way back from the store. That's which, right. Which I didn't just, think about that. Which doesn't tell you anything except for that it was probably not an accidental incident. So weird. I also want to just mention, because we had talked about the attention to detail that the cops gave and that's yes. how they solved it. I had been watching and I'm not doing an NNW on this, at least for now or anything, but I watching on, I think it was Hulu, but now I can't remember the doc don't pick up the phone. And it was about the hoaxes to McDonald's <sighs> over the years and stuff. And it shows the difference. There were two cops, one in Kentucky and one in Massachusetts who decided they're going to try to find out who this was. And there were like over a hundred of these incidents over 10 yes. years. And there were at least 98 cops who said, fuck this, I'm not going to do it. And just to clarify it, just a brief summary of what it's... The well, somebody would hoax call a McDonald's or other fast food restaurant and have a supervisor or somebody basically make somebody strip. People got sexually assaulted. The person said they were a cop. It sounds like who would believe that, but you have to watch it. And people in it say the police wouldn't take it seriously, mm -hmm. that they didn't think it was a big deal and wouldn't take it seriously. And it's probably something we should talk about doing NNW at some point, because there's a lot of interesting things, but two cops did. And that's how they finally found out the guy was in it. And people were hurt. They were sexually assaulted. They were traumatized, but the and they are trauma didn't people give are a traumatized shit. By and that, that kind of thing. but that documentary is a great example of what we were talking about in the logan clegg episode episode 133 lots of times the difference between solving a crime and not solving a crime is cops who are willing to use their imagination and do this detail connect the dots kind of work and take it seriously that others won't do like people oh it's an uns like lots of times you see on documentaries and stuff these cold cases and a new cop takes it over and like they sh always show him there with all the files and stuff and then he notices something in a file and that's the one little thread usually it's something that should have stuck out and you're like i think Why? it's people who ha also have a natural curiosity and want to know why, or they really, really want to get to the bottom of things. Right. Other people are just doing their job and that's right. like, whatever. And, and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, but well, there, there kind of is if you're a cop. Yeah. But I think that it's just like with journalism and other degrees say, of it. Right. I was going to say, I noticed that when I worked for newspapers too, the people who were like that wrote better stories yeah because you, you really want to know you right. want to know you want to know and you like, ask questions and that's other... why that documentary people are watching it because they just want to know why would someone do that they're right. fucking sick it's right. disgusting but i do have I two know. updates before we get to our thing all right one i mentioned last episode because it had just happened right before we started recording so this is more in depth atiana jefferson mm -hmm. she was part of episode 77 you know mm -hmm. cop shooting black women for no good reason mm. that wasn't the name of the episode but that's kind of that, what it was erin yeah. dean the 38 year old former fort worth texas police officer who shot atiana jefferson to death through the window of her house in 2019, was sentenced to 11 years, 10 months, and 12 days in prison on manslaughter charges on December 20th. At the sentencing, Atiana's sister, Ashley Carr, said, My sister did not do anything wrong. She was in her home, which should have been the safest place for her to be, and yet turned out to be the most dangerous. She was murdered, and as her big sister, I live every day with the pain that I could not do my job and protect her. Aww. Unquote. 
Carr, the sister, told Dean, the cop, that she pitied him. Not because of the punishment you have received for your crime. You and I both know that is insufficient. I pity your ignorance. Mm. You do not know enough to be ashamed. You are not self-aware enough to understand your responsibility for this evil act. Prosecutors had wanted the 20-year maximum, and Dean's defense had asked for a suspended sentence of community supervision, noting that he was acting in his role as a police officer mm. and was not in need of rehabilitation. And I think he was. Rehabilitation that makes you get it. Shortly after 2 a.m. on October 12, 2019, police arrived at Jefferson's house after a neighbor called the non-emergency line to report her door was open, and he was concerned that it's like 2 a.m. and this front door is wide open. The police, when they arrived, Dean and his partner didn't announce themselves as police mm. or do what I would have done and gone up to the door and given a yoo-hoo. Hey, yes. is anyone is home? Okay. Yeah. Right. Instead, they stalked around the house and it's not clear, but Jefferson probably realized there was somebody stalking around outside her house. Dean fatally shot her through a window saying she aimed her gun at him and was about to shoot police body cam shows that kind of wasn't true the jury convicted him of manslaughter i think because it was one of those kind of we talked about this last time kind of compromise verdicts where they didn't want him to get away with it but they didn't want to find him guilty of murder and blah 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 and the door was open by the way i don't know if i knew this or mentioned it last time but because she'd burned a hamburger and so opened the door which i can fully identify with because anything sets my smoke detector off and it it, it can be 20 below same here yeah and i'll open my back door to make the friggin smoke during our episode we talked about the militarization of police that was episode 77 and how forces like fort worth focused on hiring guys with a military background and treating the police force like an army that was out to attack an enemy Mm -hmm. and that's part of the big problem that i don't think police get that people do and obviously there's so more to say about this you can listen to episode 77 if you haven't and i'm sure the topic will come up again now i do have an update too for episode 125 katadin kills and doesn't care and also it's kind of an update of our update during episode 132 of the same topic and you know i said in episode 132 two episodes ago that people obviously aren't listening to me about hiking safety and now here's more proof around 11 a.m on christmas eve joe peng tony lee 28 of salem massachusetts set out to hike the bridal path falling waters loop in new hampshire's white mountains and that's part of the same bigger loop emily satello was hiking in november when she got caught in bad weather unprepared and died well Mm -hmm. lee loved the outdoors and skied in the winter and stuff he had no experience hiking in winter all trails a website that describes hikes says the 8.9 mile loop which has a 4,000 foot elevation gain and goes over at least a couple of new hampshire's high peaks it says the appalachian mountain club lists the average time of completion at seven hours Mm. further labels it a strenuous hike Mm. as such do not be fooled by the numerous hikers trail runners and even dogs taking the journey there's no easy ascent If you are not accustomed to being active for seven or more hours, I'd recommend a shorter version. And they're just talking about normal weather conditions there. If they're not talking about winter, the weather on Christmas Eve in the White Mountains was well below freezing and very icy. The day before, we'd had gale force winds and precipitation. It was rain in a lot of places. But in the mountains, it was snow. If you remember from Emily Sotelo, there was waist-deep snow in some places. So this dumped more snow and ice made it very icy and treacherous. 
So it takes a long time to go a very short ways. Nobody's up there shoveling the trails off. You know, the, the mountains are the mountains. Before I tell you what happened to Tony Lee, if you remember, I wrote a letter to the Boston Globe in October. I won't read the whole thing again, but basically it's like bring a trail map, bring a compass, bring a flashlight, don't rely on your phone, don't hike alone, blah, blah, blah. I wrote that in response to a story they'd had that talked about how to check the weather but did not have those basic things. Tony Lee was wearing ice traction devices on his hiking boots. Tony lives in Massachusetts, but a relative in China was tracking him via cell phone. According to Lieutenant James Neelan of the New Hampshire Fish and Game Department, Lee didn't have extra clothing, didn't have a light source, didn't have a compass, didn't have a trail map. Simply just finding the trail markers without a light and pitch black is next to impossible, Neelan said. Lee's phone died in the cold, and the relative tracking him, who, like I said, lived in China, called emergency personnel at 6.15 p.m. when he hadn't heard from Lee for a while. The sun had gone down at 4, by the way. You know, it's one of the shortest days of the year. Neelan said that Lee had ski clothing on, but ski clothing is not proper for a sustained hike in the mountains in winter. Neelan said... Ski clothing protects against the cold, but does not account for the extra sweat that builds up while hiking. Quote, you need to get the moisture away from your body, so you really want to pay attention to layering when you're going to be doing a lot more exertion. Yes, layers, layers, layers. He reminded hikers, just like I did in my letter, to have a light source, a trail map, not rely on your phone, and don't hike alone. Quote, very rarely do we go after multiple hikers having a problem. It's usually a single lone person trying to make decisions on their own, and their decision-making is altered because of the stress of the situation, unquote. Lee's body was found on Christmas Day. He was the 21st hiking fatality in New Hampshire this year, which Neelan said is about average. People may think there's more, but Neelan said because he and Sotella were both young people, it kind of got more attention than other fatalities do. I was interested to note, Becky, and I had sent you a text at the time that that's about the same or more than New Hampshire's average yes, every it year. Is. The White Mountain Observatory, as I mentioned last time, put up hundreds of signs all over the White Mountains at trailheads and other places warning people of hazards. But the Boston Globe reported that some outdoor advocates say park and state officials should take greater responsibility for educating new hikers about potential um, risks and best safety practices. And you know what Maureen says? Ignorance is always going to find a vacuum. It confounds me that someone who did enough research to find a trail did not stumble upon information about safety. It confounds me that anyone who goes hiking in the mountains, no matter what time of year, doesn't understand basic safety. And how can anyone who lives in New England and skis like Lee did not understand what the mountains are like in mountain conditions and how it may not be snowing in Salem, but it sure as hell is snowing 4,000 feet up. And I'm not victim blaming, but I am saying that it's obvious that you can bend over backwards to inform people. This happened a month after Emily Sotelo's case, and it was very publicized. It was all over the newspapers, all over the web. I'm not sure how much more you can inform people. At some point, people have to inform themselves, and New Hampshire does get some shit because when they have to go rescue people and it turns out the person was irresponsible, they charge them thousands and thousands of dollars for the rescue i think that's probably the one thing that's going to get people to pay more attention they might get shit about it but first of all it brings the problem into the public eye more right and second of all it might make them stop and think 
before they right. maybe it won't if they were just rescuing people without any recourse especially people who rely on their cell phones and then call 911 on your cell phone or whatever when they get lost yeah and this people you know he probably thought having his relative in china ten thousand miles away tracking him was but your phone dies the only thing i use a cell phone for on a hike is to take pictures with i i don't go on hikes so yeah i know you don't worry about that but should we start so as we said maine which has had 29 Mm. homicide incidents this year, the most recent one on Christmas Day, and 30 victims. But they've started listing them on the Maine State Police website, which they didn't used to do, including whether they're a domestic or not. Yes. And the person they categorize they, them and they give a little bit of a right. information. And it's interesting because nice. one of the ones you're going to do, they actually had on there, but then took off. But you'll yes, talk about that. I will talk. And so what we're going to do is go through the list and you and I have each picked out a few to highlight. Just overall, the perpetrators were three female 26 male Mm. and four unknown in other words they either haven't solved it or aren't saying how does that add up to 29 because for instance there was one where four guys were arrested oh yeah okay sorry (laughs) so there are 29 incidents 30 victims because one in one two people were killed that Sorry. reflects nationally up to 90% of murder perpetrators are men. The huge amount of victims are also men, but of course, with domestic, the huge amount of victims are women. So mm-hmm. the victims of Maine this year were 14 female, 16 male, and in the 16 men, I'm not including the two male murder suicide perpetrators. Oh. I'm not including them as victims. There were 11 non domestic. Six that used guns, one that used stabbings, four no causes been made public, 17 domestic, if you include the three-year-old on Christmas Day. They haven't Mm. put it on the list, but But I would think so. Since it's a family member. Seven were women killed by male partners or acquaintances. Two of those were murder-suicides, where a male killed a woman. In those domestics, two were by gun, one was by car, one was by beating, and four no cause has been made public. Hmm. There were three where a son killed a father or a mother. Hmm. And with the two fathers who were killed, um, they were beaten and stabbed. The mother was strangled. There was one where a stepfather killed his stepson by shooting him. There were two where brother killed a brother. One was a gun. One was unknown. Uh, Not unknown, but not made public. There was one where an uncle killed a niece. Gun. Two where a parent killed we don't know this latest one if it was a parent but two where a child was killed by a relative cause unknown and there was one unknown relationship that has been classified as a domestic a man was killed by a teen boy and they don't have the same last name so i don't know if it was a stepson or they Hmm. haven't said and that was gone so should we just get into them sure the first one of the year, and we did a mini episode on it on January 26th, I think. So it may sound a little familiar, but we didn't have a ton of info at the time. Not that we have a lot more now, since local journalism sucks. And also, local journalists, we used to put the PDFs of affidavits online all the time. And now many of these we're going to talk about tonight referenced affidavits yes. that were made public, but nobody linked an affidavit to a story. And I don't know if that's, you can't find them online. So anyway. I wish the state police would put them online when they. Me too. When they make them public. Eva mm. Cox, 58 of Lubeck, 
was Maine's first murder of the year Aww. on January 8th. Cox was living in her dream home on Jim's Head Road, which is on Bailey's Mistake, a cove in the southeastern part of Lubeck, which is way, way down east. Mm-hmm. The coast is named for a ship captain named Bailey who ran his ship aground on rocks at the entrance to the cove, known as Bailey's Ledge. Some folks like realtors also call it Broad Cove, since I think the word mistake doesn't lend itself to selling houses or something. But the official name still sticks, and it's a beautiful main coastal cove full of rocks with views across the cove of pine trees. Also living in Eva's house were her boyfriend, Paul DeForest, uh. 65, and a lodger from New Hampshire. Mm. I, I think he was a friend of DeForest, whose name has not been made public. Uh-huh. On January 8th, The lodger was sleeping in his upstairs bedroom and was awoken by a pop sound from downstairs. He went down to check things out and saw Cox lying on the floor with blood around her body. DeForest was standing nearby next to the kitchen counter and a pistol was on the counter, Ah. the lodger later told police. He went back upstairs, packed his bags, and left for New Hampshire. I don't think I would have waited to pack my bags. I know. Well, who knows what was said in the I interim. Know. I don't know if DeForest left the house or whatever, but two days later on January 10th, he called the police. And when I did this almost a year ago, I mentioned we don't know who called the police or how they got there because we didn't know about the lodger, but now we do. Reminds me of this guy that used to hang around in Augusta called Roger the Lodger. <laughs> I remember him. He called I think in the Washington County Sheriff's Department, informing them about the incident, according to an affidavit that I could not find, but was reported on in the press. He also told police he heard the couple, quote unquote, bicker daily. The same day he called the police, he got a text from Paul DeForest that said, if you are ever questioned about what happened, Eva and I were fighting as usual over the house. She asked you to leave and you did eventually. You will have to return and all your tools as well as mine. Take care, brother, and thank you for everything, unquote. Mm. After the lodger called police, the Washington County Sheriff's Department went out to Eva's property, saw blood and a woman's earring on the ground outside the house and said, whoa. And they called the state police major crimes unit. They also saw fresh tire marks consistent with those of a tractor that they found in a nearby barn. On the tractor, they found blood in and on the tractor bucket, which tells me it was a front loader or a tractor with a front loader, not just a regular old tractor. They got a search warrant and eventually on January 11th, the next day, After the search was expanded to include the Maine Marine Patrol, Maine Warden Service, and Sniffer Dogs, the Marine Patrol, because this is a waterfront house, you know, on the ocean, they found Cox's body inside the trunk of her locked Chevy Malibu. Her house address is 69 Jim's Head Road. The Chevy Malibu was found at 65 Jim's Head Road. Now in April, I was in Lubeck for a little weekend getaway and drove out there. And the houses are all on the beautiful Rocky Cove, Bailey's Mistake, and are mostly surrounded by woods. They're each fairly secluded, though there was one for sale about three lots away from hers that was in a nice open spot with a beautiful view. It was a little ranch. The road itself is an old two-lane dead end that comes off Boot Cove Road, which connects that end, the eastern end of Lubeck, with Trescott. And I think it's mostly traveled just by people who live around there and stuff. By the time police found Eva Cox's body, Paul DeForest was long gone. They tracked him 830 miles down Interstate 95 to a house in Warrenton, Virginia. They don't say how they found him there. 
maybe the affidavit does, but after a brief negotiation with local police over the phone, DeForest surrendered without incident. DeForest waived extradition and was returned to Washington County, where he was arraigned on a murder charge January 26 in Machias, where Washington County Superior Court is, and he is being held without bail. His lawyer, Stephen Juskowicz, said at the time he'd be requesting a harness hearing in the next few days after he's had a chance to review the arrest warrant. A harness hearing is called by the state normally to make cases to why someone charged with murder shouldn't be allowed to get bail. When bail hasn't been set, some defense attorneys seek the state to have a harness hearing in order to get a feel for what kind of evidence the state has and also nail down whether there will be bail or not. Usually in these cases, bail is so high the typical main murder defendant can't afford it, so the defense has nothing to lose with asking the state to call a hearing. I've seen nothing online to indicate there was actually a harness hearing. The affidavit was released around that time, so maybe there was. I can only find it quoted in the Quaddy Tides, which is a little <laughs> weekly paper that is so backwards yes. it puts its stories online via pdf yes it does um yes. so they did not attach an affidavit i don't know if they have the technology to do it as i said earlier the bangor daily news portland press herald reference affidavits for many of the stories we're talking about today no links to any affidavits what the fuck as we learned with our last episode if you leave it to the newspaper to decide what part of the affidavit mm -hmm. is important you miss a lot of interesting stuff mm -hmm. and i think that's the record for saying the word affidavit in one yes. paragraph right there anyway DeForce was indicted by a Washington County grand jury on May 18th. On September 19th, his attorney, Stephen Cheskowish, was in Washington County Superior Court asking for a change of venue because Eva Cox was, quote, very well liked within the community, unquote. And, you know, it's a small population area. <laughs> Everybody knows each other. The judge did not make a decision during the hearing, saying he'd need more information and gave the defense until the end of September to provide it. Of course, this being Maine, that was only reported on the Bangor Fox TV station, nowhere else. And I can't find a follow-up anywhere, find out if there was a change of venue or not, or when a trial may be. Before she was killed, Eva Cox had recently moved back to Lubeck, her hometown from Hancock, a town down the coast in Hancock County. She had the intention when she moved back home of opening a bed and breakfast, her friend said. She'd owned the two acres on Jim's Head Road since 2009, but the house wasn't finished until 2021, according to the listing. After her death, it was sold for $550,000. Mm. It's a cute little log cabin type home, open concept, first floor, and upstairs looks like a loft with two small bedrooms and a bathroom. Very nice little house. Her house, not Paul DeForest's house. Yeah. After she was killed, family and friends said that building that house was her dream home. I cringed when I saw DeForest's reference in the text uh -huh. to the lodger about fights over the house. It was her house, by all accounts, paid Ugh. for and dreamed of and built by her. I have no clue how the two met, but since he's a contractor, mm. I wonder if he built the house or worked on the house and that's how they met. Always bugs me, and it's kind of a similar thing to like Abby Petito and Brian Laundrie. Mm -hmm. That van was heard 
she had paid for it. it was registered to her but he acted like it was his exactly this house was hers and too bad it had to be her dream had to be oh that's by. so sad the quaddy tides reported mm. on january and 8th. i just interject it's the most easterly published newspaper in the u.s it is i yes. have that much so. it is yep Whenever I'm in Lubeck, I pick one up because it's free and like sits there in a stack in the grocery store. I do too, yeah. It reported on January 28th that DeForest had most recently been working as a contractor on the former Ryerson and Lois Johnson house on School Street in Lubeck. They acted like everybody knew what this was. I had to look it up. (laughs) And it says the house is now owned by Wayne David Hand. And Cox was working there as a housekeeper. So that's an 1840 Greek Revival house, also known as the Jeremiah Fowler House. And it's on the National Register of Historic Places. It's not clear what Eva and DeForest would have been doing working there. If owner Wayne David Hand is running a bed and breakfast, I couldn't find out online. It doesn't seem to offer Hmm. lodgings or anything. Maybe he bought it and deforest was fixing it up and he's the kind of person who hires a housekeeper i don't know the quaddy tides did not elaborate eva's friend patty davis told wabi tv in bangor in january she is a wonderful wonderful girl i love her just like a sister her friends and neighbors said she loved animals and always had beautiful flowers blossoming from Mm -hmm. her deck as well as a hearty hello to anyone who was passing by Another friend, Brenda Alley, said she had a bunch of energy. Every time you turned, she was doing something, planting, helping her friends, or working. Her brother, Peter Case, told WCSH that he'd only met DeForest once, right before his sister's Mm. desk. And um, with a lot of these, we're going to put some videos on our website, and I'll put the video of her brother um, there. He said, matter of fact, I just met him a week or so ago, went down to the store, and Eva introduced me to him, and he just kept right on going, walking. Case said the news of Cox's death came as a shock to the family. They didn't realize he was the kind of man who would do something like that. And as I said in January, I'm sorry, I can't do a main accent, but... I loved um, her brother, wouldn't it? Real, just a real mainer, main type of guy. Eva was born in Lubeck. She was one of 10 kids in the family, seven girls and three boys. She'd most recently worked at the Walmart in Ellsworth. Um, she'd worked there in about 19 years before retiring wow. a year or two ago. While working there, she received many certificates, recognizing her for outstanding customer service, loyalty, and a strong work ethic. Her colleagues knew her as a kind soul who was always willing to help and provide a little extra motivation when needed. She was a dedicated mother, first and foremost, according to her obituary. She treasured her grandchildren and embraced every moment with them. She especially loved her role as nanny. She had an energetic personality and always made people around her laugh. She made friends everywhere she went, and all the customers at Walmart loved her too. And she was survived by her daughter, son-in-law, three granddaughters and a grandson, five sisters, three brothers. And as we'll see in many of these, the person who was killed is somebody whose life touched a lot of people, and it just some stupid jerk, dirtbag idiot decided that they were going to kill this person. And it's always so sad. And before we get on with the rest of the list, just a note, coincidentally, kind of, we're going to talk about several of them. A lot of the murders this year took place in Washington County, which is way, way down east. Lubeck is a town of 1300 in Washington County. It's the easternmost point in the U.S. 
Washington County is Maine's third least populated county with 31,000 people. It's also one of Maine's poorest and has been plagued by drug issues like many places. There were five murders in Washington County this year. Two were domestic, including the one I just talked about. Two were drug related and one is under investigation and it hasn't been determined whether it was domestic or not. There have been seven in the past 12 months. Yes. Though the county, as I said, only has a population of 31,000. There's been a lot of press about Downies and Washington County in particular as having a lot of murders and all the stories, all they reference is drugs. The Machias Valley News Observer in an article earlier this year noted that there have been 12 murders since 2017 in Washington County. Yes. The article says Washington County Sheriff Barry Curtis has been in Washington County law enforcement since 1995, and he's never seen anything like it. It started in 2017, and it just keeps going, he said. It's just what I said when I first came into office. We have a drug problem here, and it's only getting bigger. Now we are seeing horrific crimes like murder. This is off the charts. And yes, like all articles about this, as I said, it's drugs, drugs, drugs. Curtis said a big part of the issue is the high market price of drugs down east. We know that there have been gang members up here, and it's very organized. It's a business. They're making more money in Washington County because people here pay three times the price it sells for on the streets of New York, Massachusetts, or New Jersey, unquote. And for those of you who aren't aware, when cops and press in Maine talk about New York and New Jersey in particular, Mm -hmm. what they mean are Black people. I'm not saying that to be racist. I'm pointing out that that's a bias. I think some people are unaware that they're doing it, but it just goes to show when you're the whitest state in the country that you do have these biases. Curtis said that four years ago, his staff and the county commissioners held a series of public hearings to sound the alarm and to ask Hmm. county taxpayers to weigh in on the request for three additional deputies. After a strained county budget cycle, this is according to the Machias paper, the sheriff's office was granted the additional positions at that time, bringing them from 14 to 17 officers. Today, the sheriff's office employs 19 officers, including the sheriff, Chief Deputy Michael Crabtree, and two new detective positions. Curtis says they could use more. We could almost double this to do what we're doing. Our deputies are working a lot of overtime, so we're trying to be very careful not to burn our people out. In addition to the sheriff's office, many law enforcement agencies respond to crime in Washington County, including the Maine Warden Service, the Maine Drug Enforcement Agency, U.S. Border Control, seven local police departments, Machias, Eastport, Baileyville, Indian Township, Pleasant Point, Callis, and Millbridge, and Maine State Police Troop J. The police Troop J is headquartered in Ellsworth. All Washington County murder investigations are led by the state police. Maine State Police Troop J Commanding Officer Lieutenant Rod Charette said his department is also concerned with the county's increase in murders. Are we taking a look at the root cause and origins? Absolutely. Mm. Are we coming up with a game plan? Yes, Charette mm. told the newspaper. And yes, there is a drug problem in Washington County, as I said. It's the state's poorest county, and with poverty comes drug problems. It's all over Maine. Although looking at homicides over the past five years, it seems more by local white people than black out-of-staters, despite the fact that every article you see in papers and on TV in Maine about the drug problem depicts them as, quote-unquote, coming from Mm out-of-state, which I said is that racist bias. But you know what else there is that no one is talking about in any of these articles as far as murder? Domestic violence Exactly. Of the murders since 2017, when there were three, there were none in 2019 or 2018, by the way, four of those murders 
where they have listed a cause have are determined to be drug related though they're not all gangs and stuff from out of state and i think only one one or two are four are domestic violence murders one could be classified as a domestic that's not a guy shot the boyfriend of his ex-girlfriend which by fbi standards would be considered a domestic i think by main state law well they don't they don't have it as a domestic on their list Hmm. then there was that triple murder which kind of threw everything off by that idiot thomas bonifante which was a crazy guy with the gun thing not drug related and not domestic a cursory look expanding to all of down east which would include Hancock County to the south of Washington County and Eastern Penobscot County shows there are just as many domestic violence murders, if not more than than drug-related murders. Domestic homicide, according to the FBI, comes in three forms. Intimate partner, in which the victim and killer were in a relationship. Family member, which is a relative who is not an intimate partner. And domestic violence related, where the killer is not a family member or in a current relationship with the victim, but it's related yeah. to a relationship and domestic violence. And there's a domestic violence element. Guns are the biggest cause of domestic violence, female partner homicide in the country. A domestic abuse victim is five times more likely to be killed by their abuser. If there was a gun in the house. Yeah, that makes sense. That's according to national statistics nationally, about 80% of domestic violence, homicide victims killed by a gun are women. When the violence against women act was in effect, Domestic homicides of both men and women went down when it was allowed to lapse in 2018 Mm. because Congress couldn't agree on gun provisions. (laughs) Domestic homicides of women started to rise while those of men continued to fall. Democrats in Congress this year attempted to close what is known as the boyfriend loophole when the Violence Against Women Act came up for reinstatement. Closing the loophole means that added to the law of people who can't get guns would be stalkers, abusers who are in a dating relationship but don't live with the person, and former dating relationship people who didn't live with the victim. Currently, current and former spouses, cohabitating partners, and those who share a child are covered by the act. They cannot get a gun if they've been convicted of a domestic violence crime. So so I know I was confusing, but Closing the boyfriend loophole, which I know people have heard about, means that they would have added stalkers, people who have dated but not lived with the victim. The amendment to close the loophole didn't make it into the final version of the Violence Against Women Act when it was approved in March. And it's funny because there are a lot of politicians who talk about their concern about crime, but just like when people talk about homicides and stuff in Maine, it all seems to be aimed at people of color and quote unquote urban crime. And nobody's talking about domestic violence crime, which is one of the biggest causes of murder in the country. Exactly. Some other national domestic violence statistics that a lot of people toss out are that one out of three women and one out of four men will be victims of domestic abuse. Hmm. But those statistics are misleading because they relate to anyone who's ever experienced any form of physical violence, even once by a partner. For instance, if the guy's coming at a woman and she pushes him away, he can say, I have been the victim of physical abuse by a partner. And studies show men 
are more likely to report things like well, that as abuse than are. women, even though there's this false narrative, oh, men don't report abuse. Men who abuse women are more likely to report abuse back at them oh, than yeah. the women being abused are. And they say we're fighting. Right. This is according to statistics, not me making this up. 75% of murder-suicides in the U.S. are domestic-related, with 94% of the victims, the murder victims, and those women. Um, I forgot to write the stat down, but most of those, a gun is used in almost yeah, all of those. That makes sense. In the United States, more than 10 million adults experience domestic violence annually, according to the National Network to End Domestic Violence. That includes one in four women, as I said, and one in 10 men who have experienced sexual violence, physical violence, or stalking by an intimate partner during their lifetime that goes beyond a one-time physical thing that causes them to fear for their safety, have PTSD symptoms, injury, or needing victim services. Hmm. Approximately one in five female victims and one in 20 male victims need medical care after physical abuse, with female victims sustaining injuries three times more than male victims. All of our homicides that we're going to talk about are not domestic violence, but because Everybody acts like all the homicides in Maine are about drugs and actually more are about domestic violence. And I wanted to get that out there. Okay. But I wanted to say about Washington County, since mine is also, people like to say it's a drug problem. It's a life problem. So hiring more police is not going to solve that problem. It's solving the result of Washington County is a rough life for people and it has been for many 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 for, since as Maine, ever right since it's remote it's hard to make a living there yeah you know and it's a beautiful place but simply hiring more police how is that going to help and i'm not saying that they're lying when they say no. there are people coming in from out of state and selling there are and, the, and this will come up in my but there are problems that are being ignored yes. There wouldn't be the market for it if there were other problems. Right, right. But also when you hear the news and read the paper and stuff, you get the impression it's a bunch of black guys coming up and selling fentanyl to these poor white rubes up in Washington County. Just from what we could see looking at these, that's not the case. I mean, I'm not saying it's not happening, but that's not where all the focus should be. But anyway, and that's a good segue into my, the killing, the, happened either on February 7th or 8th. They're not sure. So it was only less than a month after yours. And it was also in Washington County. My information came from the Bangor Daily News, Portland Press Herald, WABI, News Center, Maine, and the Quaddy Tides, the most easterly published newspaper in the U.S. Quaddy Tides. On Wednesday, February 9th, 2022, Washington County Sheriff's officers responded to a call at about 5.30 p.m. about a, quote, unresponsive woman. The call was to 515 Layton Point Road in Pembroke, Maine, which is way down east, up towards the eastern tip of the state near Canada. In the small white house, police found the body of Paula Johnson, age 53. A couple days later, her death was ruled homicide by the Maine Medical Examiner's Office, but the cause of death was not released right away. In fact, very little information was released, even in July, when they arrested Rebecca Moores, age 42, from Robinston, Maine, which is a town a little bit north of Pembroke. Just so you know, Pembroke has about 800 residents, and the population of Robinston is about 500. On Wednesday, July 6th, the day before my birthday, 
Rebecca Moores was arrested at about three in the afternoon during a traffic stop on Hardy Point Road in Pembroke. It's unclear if she was stopped because the police recognized her car or if she was stopped for something else and they knew she had a warrant out. I think it was the former because the news report said the officers of the Maine State Police, Major Crimes Unit North, and the Pleasant Point Police Department took Rebecca Moores into custody. If you remember from our episode 41, Murder at Not-So-Pleasant Point, Pleasant Point is the Passamaquoddy Reservation, and it's just east of Pembroke past the town of Perry. The news reports don't make clear why members of two different law enforcement groups were together, and I'm not sure if they thought Rebecca Morris might be hiding on the reservation or if they were dealing with something else and just happened to stop her or what. Nothing is explained very Mm -hmm. well. There is a lot of information because this happened early in the year, but we're still not going to get more information until she goes to trial. Rebecca Morris was known to police in the area. In 2012, she was convicted of felony theft. In 2014, she was convicted of operating motor vehicle under the influence of alcohol, which we call OUI here in Maine. In 2015, she was charged with unlawful possession of drugs, escape, refusing to submit to arrest, and violation of conditions of release, all misdemeanors. Those charges were dismissed later. In January 2020, Rebecca Morris was a passenger in a truck that was involved in a fatal crash. She wasn't charged with anything for that. At the time of Rebecca Moore's arrest, police were still only saying that the death was, quote, suspicious, but weren't telling what happened to Paula Johnson. Rebecca had been a suspect from the beginning. It was later reported that she had been interviewed by police three times before they arrested her and charged her with murder, which in Maine carries a sentence of 25 years to life in prison. As for Paula Johnson, people around the town of Prembrooks had suspected some sketchy stuff going on at the Johnson house. There were rumors she was selling drugs. I've lived near drug dealers and have had at least one tenant in the past who sold drugs. It's easy to spot if you are home during the day. There's usually a constant stream of visitors who stay a few minutes. Now, I'm not mentioning this to victim blame or cast dispersions on Paula Johnson, but when you sell drugs out of your home, you're making yourself vulnerable. Let me pause for a side story that's slightly relevant. About 25 years ago, my ex-husband and I lived in and managed his four-unit building. We lived on the third floor. I was in college at the time and did most of the maintenance on the building. I was fixing up the first floor apartment when I noticed something about the second floor tenant. He had a lot of visitors all day long, usually two or three people, young. Up they go, knock on the door and come down a few minutes later. He paid his rent in cash. And he paid on time and he was quiet. So we were kind of like, mm. my ex's youngest brother was managing the building when that apartment was rented out. A young woman and her two kids moved in and the young woman signed the month to month rent agreement. We moved into the building a few months after my ex's brother moved out. By that time, this tenant's boyfriend was living there with her and her children. She ended up breaking up with him and she moved out. And that's when the visitors started. Mm hmm. His biker brother also moved in and some other guy. But like I said, they were quiet. They were always friendly to me, albeit not overly so. The tenant had a German shepherd who had a name I could never remember. She was not friendly. She would growl at everyone. I went to pet her once and said, oh, she's not friendly. And he said, I know. She's guarding my drugs and Exactly. Guns. Well, that's what he implied. 
Right. Our tenant moved out after a year. We were getting nervous about our liability housing a drug dealer in a building mm-hmm. we own. As far as we knew, it was mostly pot he sold, but who knows? But we were wimpy and couldn't think of a way to kick him out, especially since we saw a gun in the apartment. It was a long gun, not a handgun, and that's not uncommon in Maine. His biker brother had threatened our first floor tenants once. They deserved it because they climbed up on the roof and were throwing bottles at cars. The biker guy said he would shoot them if one of the bottles hit his bike and they did get down after that Mm -hmm. my ex-brother-in-law had rented the apartment out to those kids and they got evicted for lack of payment the city police were doing some program where they were putting an office in at-risk neighborhoods and their office was about a block away they sent out a notice to all building owners that if we wanted to we could give them a key to the building's front door in case of an emergency because there were a lot of -of out-of-town landlords and they were just there was issues in that neighborhood we had no intention of doing this but we sent a notice to all our tenants telling them that we thought it was a great idea and just so they knew if they saw police in the building we had given them a key just for extra protection it worked like a charm the tenant told us he would be moving out the next month (laughs) buying a house in the country where it was quiet (laughs) bought a house in Gorham. After he left, we painted our building a medium blue with gray trim. Next door to us was another triple decker that was blue with pink trim. Several times people would wander into our building looking for someone who lived next door. Mm -hmm. They thought they were the same. We didn't choose the color, by the way. My other brother-in-law worked for a paint company and sent us the paint. We didn't Mm -hmm. like the fact that it was almost the same color as the building next door, but my husband owned the building with his two brothers. We didn't really have a choice unless we wanted to buy all that paint ourselves. Anyway, after the tenant moved out, there was a home invasion at the pink and blue building on the second floor. Some guys burst in with weapons and threatened the three college kids who were living there, telling them to hand over the cash and drugs. The frightened boys didn't have anything, and I'm not sure how it was resolved. I tried to look it up, but I couldn't find anything about it on newspapers.com. And I thought it was while we were living there, but now that I think about it, it might have been after we moved out, Mm -hmm. after we sold that building. When it happened, my ex and I were sure that the home invaders thought they were bursting in on our tenants. However... I think they were probably lucky that they were wrong because my tenant and his brother and their friends seemed prepared for that type of thing. And anyone who burst in would find out. So the point of this long tale, when you sell drugs, people know you have two things. You have cash because drug dealers don't take credit cards or checks or even Venmo. Mm -hmm. They don't want a paper or electronic trail. And you have drugs. So if somebody wants your stuff, they know where it is. Paula Johnson found this out in April 2021. Three people forced their way into her house in Pembroke and stole thousands of dollars from Paula and a guest from out of state. The Bangor Daily News called him a so-called house guest. But my definition is that he was staying at the house, so he was a guest. Yes. No matter what the reason he was staying. The paper reported that the drug trade in Washington County had become so busy that dealers would come from out of state and stay at a local person's house and, quote, set up shop. Although the story doesn't specify Paula's guest's ethnicity, I wonder if he was Black, and that's why there was so much sarcasm in the story. Yes. Washington County Deputy Sheriff Ashley Sealer said in a summary report about the incident that Paula told police her son, Joshua Carter, and two other people broke in early in the morning on April 18th. They tried to tie her up, but she fought back. Quote, she said Josh then went upstairs and they tied up her, quote, house guest and stole all his money before running out the front door, end quote. 
The guest, who told police he was from New York, said that Joshua and another guy tied his hands using zip ties and beat his legs with a baseball bat before taking his money. Quoting Deputy Sealer's report, he said he had about $10,000 for school and school supplies. The guest from New York had no ID on him and declined to give a written statement. The three intruders took off in a pickup truck but were quickly caught and arrested. They were Joshua Carter, 32. Tabitha Carroll, 29, of Pleasant Point, and Edward Sakabasin, 40, of Perry. They all ended up pleading guilty to burglary and other charges and got sentences from six months for Sakabasin to six years for Joshua. Joshua was also ordered to pay over $9,000 in restitution, I guess, mm-hmm. to the New York guy. It was a little less than a year after her son robbed her home that a friend of Paula's came knocking on her door and got no answer on February 9th. The unnamed friend looked through the window and saw Paula on her couch slumped over. They broke down the door and found Paula with blood coming out of her right ear and blood covering the left side of her head. This information came from a Maine State Police affidavit written by Detective Adam Bell. According to People Question, Paula dealt drugs out of her home and had 30 to 40 customers. When police found Paula's body, she was surrounded by needles, lighters, and a melted white substance. A search of Paula's house turned up a bag full of cash, but the amount was not given. Detective Bell wrote that there was a crumpled note near Paula's body expressing the writer's displeasure that the quality of the drug she had purchased had declined and she would no longer be buying from whomever the note was addressed to. You know, they mention that note, but they don't say if, if, and like I said, without me seeing the affidavit, I don't know. If I was seeing that on a TV show, I'd say that's a setup. It's a red herring. It's know, somebody trying to so stage me it to too. look like something it wasn't. When police spoke to Paula's son, who the newspapers don't identify, so I don't know if it's Josh Carter or another son, he told them Rebecca Moores was Paula's best customer. According to the police affidavit, Rebecca Moores told police incriminating statement about the murder scene, whatever that means, I guess incriminating to herself. Rebecca and others who knew Paula told police that Paula protected herself and had a pit bull who, according to the affidavit, would only allow people in the house that it knew and it would rip apart anyone else. And they don't name the dog. Mm. I wanna... And I like little pit They're, Me cute, too. Little They're cute little. They're happy little dogs. Usually. Usually. According to texts between Rebecca and Paula, they'd been in a romantic relationship a few months before Paula was killed. They'd ended the relationship in December. And according to text messages between them, and this is according to the affidavit, because I don't know what they said. The ending was not an amicable one. Mm. Rebecca kept changing her story when police interviewed her. First, she said she was with Paula the night of February 7th and then left to go to Callis about a half hour drive away. But when she came back to Paula's later that night, because Paula wasn't answering her text. Paula's door was locked and the dog was barking inside. So Rebecca left. In a later interview, Rebecca said she went to Paula's house with two male friends. One of them told her they had been killing heroin dealers. These two guys, apparently they said they were going around killing heroin Mm. dealers, but Rebecca didn't take them seriously. Rebecca told police she knew that Paula had gotten a shipment of drugs the day before. Rebecca said she thought the men were just going to beat up and rob Paula. The affidavit said she thought they were just going to break Paula's jaw and rob her. And I said, oh, that's all? What a Mm -hmm. nice friend. Then Rebecca told police that the men drugged her, Rebecca, and used her as bait to get into Paula's house. Either way, one aspect of the story was the same. 
Rebecca told police that they all waited until Paula shot up heroin and passed out, and then they shot her. The medical examination confirmed that there was heroin in Paula's system, and she was probably unconscious when she was killed. At least that was according to one report. Another report said that Paula had a combination of Xanax and a high amount of fentanyl in her blood, which could have potentially killed her. If someone was going to kill her, they wouldn't have had to shoot her. You know, they could have given right, her an overdose. Some, right. But whatever. Yeah. It just shows how dumb people are. Well, sometimes when you have a gun, you want to use it. Rebecca's story about the two dealer killers fell apart as police looked at evidence. There was a Shell gas station on Route 1 near Paula's house, and that station had a camera. Rebecca stopped for gas at 7.20 p.m. on February 7th, and again at 8 a.m. on February 8th, and she was alone in her car. Plus, Rebecca's cell phone showed that Rebecca was at Paula's house the whole time between 7.30 on February 7th and 8 a.m. And she texted one of the men, the dealer killer guys, at 7.30 p.m. on February 7th, and he texted her back, which disputed her assertion that they were together. Of the two men that Rebecca said killed Paula, neither man's DNA was found in Paula's house. Also, one man had a good alibi, and his Facebook activity showed he wasn't with Rebecca or Paula that night. The other man, who was involved in a relationship with Rebecca at the time of the killing, said he was high that night, and Rebecca had locked him in her trailer. Apparently, she did this a lot. She would tie him up with zip ties and padlock him inside her trailer. In fact, he'd sent a Facebook message to someone at about 11 p.m. on February 7th, telling them he was locked in the trailer. Paula didn't like the guy Rebecca was seeing. This guy told police that Rebecca had offered to stab Paula in the neck for him simply because he and Paula didn't get along. So this guy probably would not have been at Paula's house, not with that mean doggy. No. If Paula didn't like him, he wasn't right. going to be there. So right. paper towel with Paula's blood was found in Rebecca's car. Investigators also found nine millimeter handgun bullets, the same caliber that killed Paula in Rebecca's car. And there's no mention of whether they found the gun that killed her. So I assume they didn't, but th yeah. that might come out later. The morning after Paula's death, Rebecca's boyfriend, the locked in guy, said that Rebecca came home, and this is quoted in the affidavit, in an excited state. He said Morse told him that she had gone to John house the night before and had sat with Johnson pretending to shoot up heroin. Moore stated that Johnson finally passed out and Moore shot Johnson behind Johnson's right ear from a distance of approximately one foot. Also, when Rebecca came home, she had two big rolls of money, one of $5 and $10 bills and one with $50 and $100 bills. She also had, quote, a lot of heroin and cocaine, end quote. I wanted to know more about the victim, and I looked everywhere for a photo. She has a page, but it has no pictures of her. At least they're not public. There were no pictures of her in the paper. I couldn't find any kind of obituary. I couldn't find any information on her mm -hmm. at all. I feel bad. I don't know. All and I know is she has that scuzzy son. Part of the problem is papers just don't cover stuff like they used to. They don't have the reporters or the resources or the imagination. But I think when it's like that, they say, uh drug dealing victim why bother when that's a i think that's a bad choice to make yeah know? like when i looked at her page she didn't post much except for memes she also had posts about how many people were in the hot you know covid statistics so had her son listed joshua carter he's a friend so i looked at his page and becca morris was listed as her friend huh. so i went on her page 
And Rebecca posted a lot. She called herself Becca. She posted 10 or 15 times per day, at least, because I scrolled through up until January 28th of 2022. Then she didn't post again until February 18th, unless she deleted some posts. But she didn't delete many because she every other day she had like Mm. lots Lots and lots of posts, mostly memes with sayings on them about being a strong woman or relationship stuff or sobriety. Hmm. She apparently got a new cat and posted about that. On February 18th, Rebecca wrote, I can't believe the lengths people will go to always make you look like the bad person. I'm Hmm. done. She got positive responses. Quote, hang in there, heart. I know the feeling. And then there's some emoji. I couldn't tell what that was. And then I'm sorry, you're going through all this shit, hun. Keep your head held up high. And I wish people would wait. You are instead of your. I know. And this one, though, I will give this person points because they wrote your and your correctly. I hate that you're hurting, my friend. But just know in your heart that it's all BS. You know your truths and your worth. Don't ever let anyone else make you feel otherwise heart. Keep your chin up on heart. We love you five hearts. Don't listen to them. You know better. I love you, my friend, and will always be there for you. Stay strong. Just the little you's, not a you. Mm-hmm. I'm here as I've always been if you need to vent. Hope you're wrong. Well, mm. haven't talked in a while, heart. And I don't know if that last person actually knew what was going on. Mm. Her last post before she was arrested was a meme a day before her arrest it said never post your achievements post alcohol and choke so they'll think you have no future people hate progress these days her comment said lol and she got two responses one said is your progress murdering people and then it had the swearing emoji and the other one said yeah think with a thumbs up emoji. And I can't tell if that was posted before or after her arrest (laughs) and if they were like agreeing with her or being sarcastic. I'm sure people were talking about her in that small community for months before she was arrested. The last news I could find was from October 19th when Rebecca Morris was arraigned and pled not guilty. Washington County has 11 pending murder cases. The oldest is from October 7th, 2020. So who knows when she'll actually go to trial if she doesn't end up doing a plea agreement. And she's in the Washington County jail until then. I read another article about Washington County and they just don't have the staffing to put all these trials on. Well, and there's also problem about the lack of defense, public defense lawyers that's caused a huge backlog, particularly in the rural areas of the state where there aren't a lot of attorneys. Because as we've discussed before, there aren't public defenders in Maine. They What they do is hire, contract out, but they do not pay well. So that was the second murder, but we're not going to do this for every murder. Right. On February 14th in Portland, Salim Al-Siraj 50 was killed. Abdallah Salim Al-Siraj, 22, also of Portland, was arrested and charged with murder. Salim Al-Siraj was found to have 18 contusions and lacerations from blunt trauma and around 50 to 60 sharp injuries after police found his body under some clothing in his apartment and he died from blood loss. A neighbor told police a man believed to be Abdallah Al-Siraj, his son, Salim's son, tried to enter the building saying his father lived there and then forced his way in. The mother of Abdallah Al-Siraj says that her son has mental health issues and he is in jail awaiting trial on his charges. On February 24th in Lovell, 
which is in Western Maine on the New Hampshire border in the Freiburg Bridgeton area. Stephen King at least used to have a vacation house there. That's the town he was in when he got hit by that guy. Yes, he got hit by the guy. Jennifer Lingard, 41, of Massachusetts, was on vacation at the family's camp with her boyfriend, Sammy Mm. Dow, and her two sons, ages four and nine. She Mm. was found beaten to death in a bedroom of the cabin. Dow then drove to Rhode Island, where he was from, taking her cell phone with him and leaving the two kids behind. He killed himself in his Providence, Rhode Island apartment. This poor little boy. That's one of the two murder suicides. On March 10th in Big Lake Township, which is in Washington County, Darren Laney Sr., 62, was killed. And Darren Laney Jr., 36, his son, was arrested and charged with murder. Darren Laney Jr.'s parents picked him up in Baileyville in Washington County. It's a town just a little north of Callis and drove him to their house in Big Lake Township. On the drive, Laney Jr. made bizarre remarks and said something bad was going to happen when they got to the house, and the mother wondered if they should take him to the hospital, but they decided not to. Immediately upon arriving home, the son grabbed scissors and stabbed his father to death. Ah, he must have either mental health. There's a lot of mental health issues. Or he's on bath salts or something. On March 19th in Easton, Maine, not Eastern Maine, but Easton, Maine. Maine State Police were called to 311 Center Road for an unresponsive one-year-old child, Uh Jaden Raymond, 18 months old. He was taken to the nearest hospital where he was pronounced dead. The officer of Chief Medical Examiner in Augusta did an autopsy and ruled it a homicide, and his mother, Mariah Dobbins, 28, of Easton, was indicted and charged with murder. On April 21st, Kimberly, Neptune's brother, Hannah, heard from her and was concerned. He had a key to her apartment in Sipayak, which is Passamaquoddy Indian land in eastern Washington County near Eastport, and also known as Perry, part of Pleasant Point, which we discussed in your one that you just did a few minutes ago. Yes. He let himself into the apartment around 8 p.m. and found his sister, Kimberly, 43, dead, wrapped in a blanket. He immediately called the police. It was obvious to them it was a homicide. The room was covered in blood. It would later turn out that Kim had been stabbed 484 times. Earlier in April, Kaylee Brackett, 38, had started complaining loudly to anyone who would listen that Kim had stolen money from her and, quote, would regret it. And that's from an affidavit by Lieutenant Lawrence Anderson of the Maine State Police. Mm. Apparently, word on that didn't get back to Kim Neptune, though we'll never know. Brackett, on April 20th, told Kim she was coming by. Kim apparently said it was okay. But when Brackett showed up, she had Donald Dana... 38 in tow. Kim balked. Dana had been Kim's roommate for several years up until last year. He later told police it hadn't been sexual the years he'd lived there, he'd slept on the couch. Mm. But that's just his word for that. Now he was in a relationship with Brackett, or at least had fathered a child with her. I just want to point out that most of the detailed information as to what happened comes third hand from a person who told the police what Dana and Brackett told her none of it is from Kim or people who knew Kim. Most of this comes from an affidavit. And uh, just a reminder, as I mentioned in our last episode, an affidavit is a way to get a warrant for an arrest. If the details don't have to be accurate the way they would in a newspaper story. Police forget stuff and everything. They just need the information there that's going to get them the arrest. You know, consider the source. So let's get back to what happened anyway. Kaylee Brackett got a babysitter on April 20th, and she and Donald Dana went to Kim Neptune's apartment. As I said, Neptune objected to Dana being there. 
She didn't like him. I don't know what happened in their roommate relationship. Brackett and Dana pushed into the apartment and Dana began attacking Kim Neptune as Kaylee Brackett started looking for money, jewelry, and drugs, Xanax, that they'd come to rob her of. Kaylee Brackett told people that she heard that Kim who I just want to point out was not a drug dealer, but Kaylee Brackett told people she heard Kim had 300 tablets of Xanax and wanted to rob her of them. Dana said later it was supposed to be a robbery, and he said Brackett talked him into doing the robbery. Brackett told a friend afterwards, Dana did most of the stabbing, but she'd stabbed Kim too. She said Kim put up a good fight. After they had stabbed her and found her money, jewelry, and the Xanax, it's not clear how much Xanax they actually found, Brackett and Dana rolled Kim up into a blanket. Then they tried to clean up the scene, but Mm. they were both high and drunk and they didn't do a very good job. Police said the bedroom had bloodstained pillows, blankets, and clothes, and the floor had blood on it. The clothes Neptune was wearing were saturated in blood, as you can guess, since she was stabbed nearly 500 times. According to police, Dana had also left his own blood in the hallway, including footprints. At least that's what they told him. Dana and Brackett left the apartment disposing of their clothes, a club, and other evidence, police said. It's not clear where or how. Whether Dana left his blood there or if it was just the police using a little read technique to get him to talk isn't clear. Still, it's likely that the bloody scene will reveal more forensic evidence in the future. We know that stabbers often cut themselves and bleed at the scene, and it's hard to believe that two less than sophisticated criminals like Brackett and Dana would have gotten out of there without leaving evidence. Hmm. But that's for the future when it comes to trial. Especially if you stab somebody 500 times, you're going to get cut too. In the days immediately after Kim was killed, police had one really nice piece of evidence. A neighbor's surveillance camera showed someone clad in black who looked female wearing a baseball cap and knapsack caught on surveillance video walking away from Kim's apartment. In a message to the community, Passamaquoddy Chief Elizabeth Maggie Dana said, we are deeply aware that the tragic events will have profound impact in the months and years to come. And we want you to know that together we will get through this and we will be here every step of the journey. The state police, with help from the Passamaquoddy police force, made it clear from the start that they were taking Kim's homicide seriously. Maine, as you know, does not have a good history with the Wabanaki people, as we detailed in episode 41. Not so pleasant point, which covers the murder of Peter Francis by five white men from Massachusetts. That was in 1965, but the state hasn't had a great track record in the decades since of taking Wabanaki matters seriously. And Maine's tangled treaty history, land grabs, and more doesn't help in those that are still causing problems. So on April 25th, tribal leaders met with Michael Sawshuck, the commissioner of the Maine Department of Public Safety, to discuss Kim's murder, which was being investigated by the Maine State Police Major Crimes Unit North and the Pleasant Point Police Department, which polices Passamaquoddy Territory in that part of Washington County. That department was offering a $10,000 reward for information leading to an arrest and conviction in the case. This tragedy has hit our community so hard, there really aren't any words for the loss felt by Kim's family, all who loved her and our whole community, Passamaquoddy Chief Maggie Dana said after she met with Sasha. That's why we were so thankful to meet and be on the same page with all the departments investigating this terrible crime who have all affirmed their determination to bring justice to the suspect and for Kim's family. And by the way, anyone who's noticed that the chief's last name is Dana is the same as one of the suspects. That's a very common Wabanaki last name, as is Neptune. Yes. Others at the meeting, the Press Herald reported, were Colonel 
John Cody, Chief of the Maine State Police, Lisa Marchese, an Assistant Attorney General who heads the Office of the Attorney General's Criminal Division, and Christopher Taub, also of the Office of the Attorney General. I thought it was interesting that they named all the white folks involved, but other than Dana didn't name the quote-unquote tribal leaders involved. One of the many unconscious, institutionally racist things that newspapers do. But let's give it up for the Quaddy Tides, the little weekly that could, which <laughs> also reported that Passamaquoddy tribal attorney Corey Hinton was at the meeting. It wasn't clear who else was. They also mentioned tribal leaders, but I can yeah. find no other reports of this meeting. You would think any editor worth their salt, if the reporter isn't going to do it, would say the reporter, you name all the white people who were the Passamaquoddy people at this meeting. But exactly. Sashuk, the commissioner of public safety, thanked the quote-unquote tribal leaders for their cooperation into the investigation of Neptune's death, the Press Herald reported. Sashuk said everyone is committed to bringing the suspect to justice and providing closure to Neptune's family and community. The next day, April 26, members of the Passamaquoddy community held a smudge ceremony, a sacred ritual in which herbs are burned as a means of purification. They drove around Sipayak with the smudge pot in the back of a truck chanting Wabnaki prayers. There's a Facebook Live video of it that I'll put on our website. That same day, Kim Neptune's obituary appeared in the Bangor Daily News, and I'd like to read some of it. Kim was born in Calais, Maine on October 4th, 1978, the daughter of Gloria Louis Cleves. Her stepfather was Frank Cleves, and her father was the late Samuel Neptune Sr., Kim graduated from Calais High School, class of 1997, and attended the University of Maine. Her favorite pastime was working as a seasonal worker in Bar Harbor as a housekeeper. And Bar Harbor, for those of you who don't know, is a very busy tourist town in Hancock County at the gate of Acadia National Park. In addition to her seasonal work, Kim looked forward to a yearly fishing, dipping for elvers, which this is Maureen, is quite a lucrative industry. They're baby eels that can be sold for thousands of dollars a pound. She also liked wrinkling, which are also called whelks. They're a kind of snail that are pickled and sold as a delicacy. And she also worked at Whitney Reef. The obit says all of these jobs require dedication, commitment, and hard physical labor, and she did so without complaint. Quote, we often called her our turtle, where she did everything with grace and time was not a factor to her. Kim's proudest moment is when she was able to purchase her own ATV, which she took pride in the care and maintenance to take her to and from her destinations with her bucket strapped to the back seat. She was always available to help in the time of need for our Sipiak tribal government. Kim's passion and most cherished moments was spending time with her brother, sisters, nieces, nephews, family, and many friends. Kim was also known for her big heart and gentle soul and her willingness to help out anyone she knew and showed her love and compassion for others. She touched so many lives with her kindness, caring personality, generosity, and her beautiful smile. Kim sadly will be missed and forever remembered by all who knew and loved her. She was truly an exceptional, beautiful woman inside and out. Our hearts are heavy and her beautiful soul has been lifted to the spirit world to be with her dad. Until we meet again, Kasolamal, which is Passamaquoddy for I love you. I'd also like to point out, just in case anyone's wondering, and I mentioned this earlier, there's no indication she was involved in drugs or the drug trade or anything else nefarious. She probably made money from her Elvers work, and and I think spring actually is when the Elvers are running. While all this was going on in the days after Kim's death, Callie Brackett was once again showing that she is not the smartest criminal in the world. 
She apparently talked to the friend who police later quoted for the affidavit, telling the friend the day after the killing that it was just supposed to be a drug robbery. She told the friend she and Neptune were seeing each other, but it's not clear if this is really the case or not. She also posted photos of herself on social media wearing similar clothing to the one the person in the surveillance (laughs) video And that surveillance photo and video was widely circulated and shown on newspapers and TV stations all over the state of Maine. The same friend told police that Dana told her he had killed Neptune, quote, in a fight that got out of control, unquote. Uh My guess is this is the person who tipped the police to Dana and Brackett. Yeah. A nice $10,000 decision for them. When police interviewed Dana, he denied any involvement and said he was at his mother's house the entire Mm. night that the robbery and attack took place, according to the Press Herald, quoting the affidavit. According to the Bangor Daily News, quoting the affidavit, he said he takes medication for seizures and could not recall where he was. But detectives found he had scratches on his chest uh-huh. and marks on his lower legs and right ear that looked like they were from a fight. They also told him his blood had been found in Neptune's stairwell where bloody footprints had been left behind. He said he had blood in Neptune's apartment when he lived there. He denied killing Neptune or having anything to do with it. It's not clear if the police interviewed Brackett. She's not quoted at all in the affidavit and there's no reference to an interview maybe she did one smart thing and got a lawyer when she was arrested on april 29th my birthday birthday bracket and dana were arrested at the time i was spending a little weekend getaway in lebec which is about 10 minutes away from sipak by boat but an hour away up route one by car yeah on april 30th i drove to eastport which is on a peninsula you have to go through sipak to get there And when I drove by Sipayak Elementary School, there was a big sign that said justice for Kim Neptune with a picture of her. And I thought, hmm, that sounds like a crime and stuff episode to me. The Quaddy Tides reported that on May 5th, members of the Passamaquoddy community held a remembrance walk from Pleasant Point Health Center to Split Rock, which is a sacred site a short ways away from the health center. More than 100 people joined in. May 5th is also National Day of Awareness for Missing and Murdered Native Women and Girls, Mm. and many of those taking part wore red in remembrance of missing and murdered Indigenous women across the nation. As we know, Indigenous women are 10 times more likely to be murdered than the national average. Mm. At the gathering at Split Rock, Jason Brown of the Penobscot Nation and Dwayne Toma drummed and sang a Passamaquoddy honor song in remembrance of Neptune. We will never forget the women who are missing, Toma said. We are still looking for them and to bring them home. And all the young women who were murdered take time to think about them and pray for them. Neptune's mother, Gloria Louis-Gleaves, said, Losing a loved one is devastating, but losing a child to murder is traumatic and heartbreaking. Our lives will never be the same and our grief will never stop. A beautiful murdered indigenous woman who touched so many lives with her humble and gentle soul was ripped from our hearts as we struggle to find out why this tragedy has shattered us. She said to those who were there in remembrance, your tears are our tears and our tears are your tears. She added that Kim's kindness, generosity, and her love for all will forever hold a special place in our hearts. She said that seven eagles had flown above her house earlier that day, and she believed it was her daughter giving her the strength to write down her thoughts for the gathering. A traditional dance was then performed for Neptune, and later family and friends joined in a round dance, encircling a small tree that was planted at Split Rock in her memory. Callie Brackett's criminal record dates back to 2004, 
and she's been convicted of theft, forgery, unlawful possession of drugs, and trafficking and prison contraband. In 2016, she was convicted on multiple charges after robbing a convenience store on Route 1A in Holden in Penobscot County. Her two-year-old son at the time was in the car. It's not clear if this is the kid she had with Dana or if she has more than one kid. And she was convicted of robbery, eluding a police officer, trafficking in prison contraband, endangering the welfare of a child, unlawful possession of drugs, and theft. Dana's record also goes back to 2004 and includes convictions for unlawful possession of drugs. In May, Brackett and Dana were indicted, and on July 9th, they both pleaded not guilty to murder charges. They are being held in Washington County Jail awaiting trial, and I'm not sure when that will be because, as we said, there's a backlog in Washington County. And this could be classified as a drug murder. I wouldn't call it that though. I would classify it more as a couple of stupid dirtbags robbing a nice person for no good reason. Drugs may have been involved, but Kaylee Brackett and Donald Dana, they're both not black guys from New Jersey or New York. They're from Maine. They're local. And I just wanted to say that we didn't go about deciding to just pick Washington County. I picked mine based on just what looked interesting. So Me too. I just don't want people to think I, we're right. bashing on and I And I County. picked Eva Cox's was the first of the year and I'd already done something on it. And then I had been up there right after Kim Neptune and was murdered. Saw that. And we do have some that aren't. The next murder in Maine was on April 26th in Portland. Gerald Coffin, 43 of West Bath was killed. Arrested were Jonathan Geisinger, 44 of Portland, Damian Butterfield, 22 of Saco, Thomas McDonald, 44 of Westbrook, and Anthony Osborne, 45 of Portland. They were all arrested and charged with murder. Butterfield was also charged with attempted murder. At 1 a.m., Portland police were called to the 100 block of Woodford Street and found Coffin shot to death in the street and a woman nearby wounded by gunfire. Neighbors reported hearing a scuffle and multiple people arguing in the street, which led to those four arrests. Hmm. That'll be an interesting one. Yeah. On May 6th in Brooks, which is in Waldo County, west of Belfast, Mm -hmm. James Clooney, 49, was killed and Attilo Delgado, 16, was arrested and charged with murder. This has been ruled a domestic by state police, but they haven't said what the relationship was. Waldo County deputies were called out to a disturbance on Littlefield Road in Brooks shortly after 9 a.m. and found Clooney fatally shot. Okay. On May 10th, in Wyndham, at the Maine Correctional Center, Ronaldo Jones, 30, a Presque an inmate at the center, was killed, and Carl Williams, 38, his roommate, was indicted and charged mm. with murder. Jones was beat and suffered a traumatic brain injury. I have one that was actually has been taken off the list of homicides, but at the time I looked at the list, it was still on it, and I thought it was an interesting one. It actually is a homicide, but maybe they took it off because you'll uh, there were no criminal right. charges. The victim was Tyler Morin, age 36, of Lewiston. And the person who shot him was Rob Drummond of Augusta. And full disclosure, Rob Drummond and I have at least three or four mutual friends. Oh, I got all my information from one place, centralmaine.com. Yeah, that's the Kennebec Journal of Morning Kennebec Sentinel. Journal Morning. There isn't a whole lot of information because there were no criminal charges. So on the morning of May 20th, Tyler Morin of Lewiston told his ex-wife he was going to Augusta to pick up his car. 
The car had been impounded and towed to Ready Road Services on Riverside Drive. Mm -hmm. Tyler, age 36, was the father of two and had one baby on the way, and he never came home. At 10.55 a.m., he was shot in the impound lot as he was driving his car, a Dodge Charger. Mm -hmm. The bullet came through the windshield and hit Tyler in the chest. He was dead when emergency responders arrived. That day, a Cadillac SUV appeared in the garage of an empty house near the car lot. A neighbor told the newspaper, it's weird, that car wasn't here here on Thursday. What I inferred is that police believe that's how Tyler Warren got to Ready Road Services, about 35 miles away from Lewiston. There's no mention in the articles about how he got there, if somebody gave him a ride, that type of thing. But they do mention the Cadillac SUV, which is inexplicably in quotation marks. It says, quote, (laughs) Cadillac SUV, end quote. It's the like, so is it not a Cadillac or did they not know? They mention it in more than one story, but they don't mention it's significant. A now defunct, but still online GoFundMe page was set up for Tyler's funeral expenses. On the site, they say a beloved son, father, and friend. Tyler was a family man who enlightened the room every chance he had. It's so hard to come up with words to express our feelings as we are hurting, crushed, and grieving. We ask you to pray for Tyler's family, his friends, and all of us who are feeling this tremendous loss. Tyler had some legal issues in the past. Going back to at least 2005 on Department of Public Safety records, which would have started, you know, when he was 18. The most recent charges were violating a protection from abuse order and violating conditions of release in 2021, which came out of Androscoggin County, where he lived. I'm not making assumptions when I say that violating conditions of release means that he was in jail previously. And not sure for what, since I don't want to pay to see his police record. Also, there are a lot of Tyler Morins in Maine, some possibly in the Lewiston-Auburn area. There's probably a hundred of them. Mm. I can't be sure of what his past was just by reading old newspapers, so I don't want to say bad things about him. But I also can say a production of abuse order means he probably had some anger issues. I don't want people to think I'm blaming the victim. No. My theory is he wanted his car back and he went to get it. He may have borrowed or taken the Cadillac SUV to get to Augusta. I don't know. When he got to the lot, he wanted his car, but he didn't want to pay to get it back or he wasn't allowed to take it back. And he was just planning on strong arming his way out of there. But he had some resistance and he was probably driving around the lot recklessly or something and people were trying to stop him. I'm only saying this because there must be a reason why no charges were filed. I'm not blaming the victim or the shooter. I don't know what happened. The shooter was Rob Drummond, age 48, the owner of Ready Road Service. As I said, he and I have three mutual friends and I have one mutual friend with Becca Moores too. On Facebook. So they're not necessarily friends that you're- Yes. I'm sorry. I did say that on Facebook, which doesn't mean anything. But Becca Moores from the other one I did, one of her friends and I have mutual friends. Maine is a small world. I don't know any of these people personally. I bet if you do a Maine six degrees Mm, of separation. On July 14th, the Maine State Police and the Maine Attorney General's Office dropped the charges against Rob Drummond, determining that Rob had acted in self-defense. We have discussed the Maine self-defense law in other episodes, but here it is again. 
a kind of a summary. The main criminal code, chapter five, section 108, subsection 1A, part two or something, I don't know. It goes all the way down, whatever. Quote, a person is justified in using deadly force upon another person, A, when a person reasonably believes it necessary and reasonably believes the other person is, number one, about to use unlawful deadly force against the person or a third person. And then there are a few other stipulations, which I'm not going to go into because they're not relevant to this case. And then we come to C, section C or whatever you want to call it. However, a person is not justified in using deadly force as provided in paragraph A, et cetera, et cetera, if one, with the intent to cause physical harm to another, the person provokes the other person to use unlawful deadly force against anyone. Two, the person knows that the person against whom the unlawful deadly force is directed intentionally and unlawfully provoked the use of such force. Or three, the person knows that the person or third person can, with complete safety, stresses mine, retreat from the encounter, except that the person or the third person is not required to retreat if the person or third person is in the person's dwelling and was not the initial aggressor. And then there's some other shit that's not relevant. So basically, if you don't provoke it and someone's coming at you and you cannot get away and you have a gun or something, you can defend yourself. And if you're in your own house, you don't have to be able to safely retreat. If you're standing in your living room and someone's coming at you, you can defend yourself. We don't have a standard ground law. It's self-defense. It's self-defense. My guess when this happened and I read the story, I think it was when I read the story about it being self-defense, my guess was based on nothing except for my imagination, I guess, was that Morin was driving at the guy. Yes. So the attorney general and the state police must have decided that Rob Drummond was in mortal danger and he couldn't get away, or at least he felt that way when he shot. Liz Morin, Tyler's mother, said in the Kennebuck Journal, do I want to see him, meaning Rob, charged with murder or manslaughter? I absolutely would. I feel he should be charged with something because the gun was already drawn. There was no reason to step in front of the car and murder somebody. I feel like there could have been some other preventions. Liz Morin didn't speculate about whether Rob Drummond feared for his life or not, but she felt that Rob, a large, well-built man, should have been able to figure out something else besides shooting Tyler. But in Rob's defense, a car is like three or 4,000 pounds. Mm-hmm. If someone is driving one at you and you aren't able to get out of the way, that's deadly force. Liz said, I'm going to let God be the judge and he'll be judged someday. Of Tyler, Liz said, he was very close to his children. Family meant everything to him. Now his kids are left without a father. That's sad. He sure didn't deserve to die. No one deserves to be shot, of course. We don't know the actual events and how they happened. The news articles don't explain why the car was towed. If it was for parking tickets or parking violation on city property, it would have gone to the city impound lot. If it was repossessed or on private property, it would go wherever the towing company puts the cars they tow. In Tyler's case, it must have been the latter. There were no accounts of what actually happened, and there won't be now because there will be no trial. As I said, I think that Tyler showed up at the lot and wanted to just go in and get his car and drive off. He may have been aggressive or causing a fuss, and that's why Rob had his gun out already. He must not have wanted to pay the fee, or it seems like it would have been a straightforward transaction, show up, pay the fee, get the car, and leave. 
I don't think Rob had his gun drawn the whole time. I don't think he just takes his gun out. I think there was a reason he had a gun. But if Tyler went to his car and got in and started to drive away, hoping maybe to smash through the fence or gate, or if he got resistance, was trying to hit people in order to get out, I don't know. Tyler's information is on the National Gun Violence Memorial site. The site has, at the time I looked at it, had... 112,528 gun violence victims and counting. Tyler's death was an unfortunate event. Without knowing all the details about it, it's hard to say how it could have been prevented without knowing the details and without sounding like I'm placing blame. But I do believe it could have been prevented somehow. It's one of those things where I do know a little bit about car repossession. That is a company that repossesses cars, but they're very nervous They're dealing with angry people. The way you get the car back is you don't know where it's been towed to. You have to pay the bank. You not only have to pay what you owe, but you have to pay all sorts of fees in it. It's a lot of friggin' money. Uh, So a lot of people whose cars are repossessed don't get them back. It's rare to get it back because you have to pay what you owe in like 20 days or even less. I can't remember what it was. And meanwhile, that you are charged a fee for every day. It's at the impound lot. What happens is once you pay the bank, they tell you where to go to get your car. When you go there, you have to give the guy a money order for the amount oh. for the amount that the towing company gets. This is that beyond all sense. the money you would pay. Okay, to get your car that makes back. sense. So, so it you could have to be give. A, he thought he had already paid up and no, he got no, mad. No, I, I'll tell you what I think. But it, so okay. you have to pay them, and then you can get your car. This was years ago. My car was repossessed, and I did get it back. And everybody was like surprised, like oh, you're going to go get it back, like the bank, the towing. And I'm like, yeah, I need my car. When I went and I had to go up to Hamden to get it, mom and dad drove me actually. And I think the keys were in it, but I went in and gave the guy the money order. He actually stayed open late so I could get there. I gave the guy a money order. If I remember right, it was a hundred bucks. So it was one or two days he had it. Then I was able to go drive my car away. But my guess is, and this is again, total guess based on my imagination. He said, I just want my car and I'm going to go get my car, went to get it. And that's why the guy had a gun because they're very skittish. They deal with a lot of of angry, angry people. people, And I'm not defending the fact someone got shot, but I think they're in a position of being constantly on guard and feeling they have to protect themselves from angry people who want their fucking car back. All I can think of is there's something that made the police and the attorney general's right. office. We don't know what right. uh, what the whole situation right. was. I do want to make the point too, that if your car's repossessed, your car doesn't belong to you. Your car doesn't belong to you until it's paid off. Mm-hmm. Who has the title? You don't. You get the title when you pay your car off. It's not your car. So you can't say I'm getting my property. And the only thing I can think if if it wasn't that, if it wasn't a repo thing, it was, I don't know. Because every time I've had my car towed, it was a parking situation and it went to the city lot. And let's face it, a guy from Lewiston isn't going to have so many tickets in Augusta. Mine wasn't for tickets. Mine was being parked. You don't even get tickets in Augusta. You know, on a parking ban. Right. And that's like. Portland, you know, I mean, yeah. you're not going to have so many tickets in Augusta that your car is going to get towed, especially if you live in Lewiston. But I just thought that was an interesting one because because the charges were dropped. It was self-defense. Yes. Although, you know, killing somebody, is that something that you live with the rest of your life? Yeah. I'm sure it's I'm sure it's not, not something gonna, it's he's... not easy. So the next day after Tyler Morin was shot on May 21st in Wells, which hmm. is a beach town in southern Maine, Octavia Huber Young. One year, 10 months old, 
was shot by her uncle, Mm. Andrew Huber Young, 19, who was arrested and charged with murder. Andrew Huber Young was arguing with his brother Ethan over a t-shirt. I'm Mm. not sure what the argument entailed. I think we're all familiar with stupid family arguments and how heated Uh they can get. Andrew stormed out of the house and apparently got a gun. He came back and shot through a glass door, killing Octavia, who again was one year, 10 months old, who was in her father's arms at the time, and injuring Ethan, her father, as well as Ethan and Andrew's father, Mark. Andrew Huber said he wasn't trying to kill Ethan. He was seeking respect. Mm-hmm. He claims he stole the gun from his father, but the baby's mother, Samantha Higgins, and her grandmother, Deborah Higgins, that's the baby's maternal grandmother yeah. and it's not related to the shooting guys, said that Andrew is lying and they want police to find out where that gun came from. Andrew is charged with murder and depraved indifference murder in the shooting death of Octavia Huber Young, as well as two counts of attempted murder and aggravated assault in the shooting of Mark Evans Young and Ethan Huber Young. And if there's ever a case for why people shouldn't be able to easily get guns, here it is. If he hadn't had access to a gun, it would have been just a stupid argument between two stupid, angry guys over something stupid, and the baby would be alive. Oh, little baby. But I know I say it all the time, but when somebody has access to a loaded gun and doesn't have a lot of self-control, they tend to use it, even if they don't have, I mean, and even if they're not mad. I mean, didn't you have a story last episode that I think we didn't finish, and I ended up having to cut it out about a, a friend with a gun? Mm. Yeah, this guy that uh, lived down the street from us who had an alcohol problem. He's since died. Their house had a barn attached to it, like a lot of our houses Like did. our house um, did, yeah. They're built in the mid-1800s. They have a big door on the top for hay bales being thrown out and stuff on the second floor, on the loft floor. He'd sit in that and shoot at stuff, which you're not supposed to do. No. With his handguns, he shot the neighbor's cat one mm. morning. There was something wrong with her. Don't victim he, blame the cat. <laughs> but the people that owned her would not get her fixed. Mm. Um, she was very unfriendly. Mm. She had babies twice a year and Aww. she had these big tumors in her um, mam- probably mammary glands. Are you saying he shot the cat as a mercy killing? No, I don't think he did, no. but it was probably the best thing for her. But he didn't kill her. He shot her chin off. And they brought the cat to the vet and the vet said she got hit by a car and put her to sleep, but the vet must have known that wasn't what had yeah. happened to her. Maybe he yeah. didn't know because what know. would you think? Oh, someone shot your cat's chin off? No. The poor cat. Yeah, but he's a drunken dangerous. idiot. Yeah. Shouldn't have had guns. And also that was in the 1970s. I honestly think that if somebody had said, hey, that guy's shooting at things, the cops would have just come and said, hey, stop shooting right. at things. The next murder was May 24th in Bath. Hmm. Janine Ross, 66, was killed. Jason Ibarra, 42, her son, was arrested and charged with murder. This is one of the domestics. Abara was staying with his mother in her apartment after he'd done time in prison Mm. for misdemeanor assault and criminal threatening. Talking to his brother on the phone at 11.30 that morning, he sounded depressed and drunk, his brother Shane Ross told police later. Shane Ross finally got Abara to tell him what was wrong, and he admitted killing their mother. (laughs) Shane Ross, the brother, called 911. Janine Ross had been strangled in her bedroom with her work key lanyard. Abara claimed she'd attacked him. And I'm Mm. like, yeah, right. My guess is she was getting ready for work. And for whatever reason, the stupid idiot 
strangled her probably got pissed off he probably wanted money and again total speculation but this is how these things he probably wanted money or something and she was probably getting fed up there you go asshole the next one another domestic Uh. june 18th and we did an episode on this with updates in winter harbor maine acadia national park nicole mckemmy 35 of south portland was struck by a car and killed by her boyfriend, Raymond Lester, 35, of Portland. He was Uh. arrested and charged with murder. You'd have to listen to the episode, but he was very controlling, abusive. She was, I think, trying to get away from him, and he had issues with that. But listen to the episode. The next day, on June 19th in Auburn, Kelsey Karen, 21, and Pierre Langlois, 21, Kelsey's of Auburn, and Pierre Langlois was of Connecticut, were killed. David Bardet, 34, of Connecticut, was arrested on a warrant for murder. Kelsey and Pierre were shot to death. And police have given few details on what Uh happened. And this story does one of those main racist things I hate so much. It says that Barnett, the guy who's been arrested, is known as Slim. Oh, Jesus. And Cash. And all the murders, or a lot of the murders this year where the suspect is a black guy from out of state, they have to give his street nickname, Uh. which I feel is just another way to caricaturize black crime, particularly in Maine, where our former governor, Paula Page, famously complained about black guys with names like slow money or whatever coming up and impregnating white girls blah 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 yeah and i bet you most of the white guys who committed murders that we talked about tonight also had nicknames that do not appear in the press but whenever there's a black guy they have to give his street name and that's the police telling the reporters these names but that doesn't mean the reporters and editors have to put it in. It's just like my issue with mugshots, where you see way more mugshots of black guys than you do of white guys. Yeah, yes. And it gives the impression whatever crime problem AIM has is being perpetrated by black men mm-hmm. from out of state when that's just not yeah. the truth. Mm-hmm. And I know I've said this before when I worked at the newspaper, I tried to get that we would either print mugshots for everyone. And if we couldn't get a mugshot, we would say in the story a mugshot was not available yes. instead of leaving it up to whoever was laying out the page and how much room they had and stuff what mugshots to put in after leaving it up to the cops which ones to give us because it seemed like we were putting in a lot of black guy mugshots and not a lot of white guy mugshots and i still find it a problem so anyway on to the next one on july 16th in skowhegan alice abbott 20 was killed jason serval 19 of massachusetts was arrested and charged with murder and this is classified as a domestic. The record has been sealed, so there's not a lot of information, but the Skowhegan Police Department responded to a 911 call from a man reporting an assault at 912 Canaan Road shortly after 5.30 a.m. on July 16th. Police found Alice Abbott dead and a male friend who was staying over from Madison, Maine, nearby Skowhegan with a head injury. Police tracked Serval down to Boston where they arrested him they said he's an acquaintance of Alice's. Hmm. And that's all the information on that one. And the next murder, on Monday, July 18th at 6 p.m., Brooke McLaughlin's mother returned to their Blackberry Lane home in Mount Vernon to find Brooke, 14, unresponsive. The mother, Rebecca, called hmm. 911. Somebody had also stolen the family's 2010 Chevy Impala. An autopsy determined the matter of death for Brooke, who was 14, was homicide, but police aren't publicly releasing how she was killed. A family friend told the U.S. version of The Sun 
the UK tabloid that the family knows how she was killed, but are keeping it private so they won't further distress elderly relatives. Five days after Brooke was killed, there still hadn't been an arrest. The Kennebec Journal reported, knowing little of what happened to McLaughlin, townspeople said Saturday they were shocked and saddened by her death. Some in the rural town of about 1,700 people also said they felt a loss of security that had them locking doors and vehicles. Mount Vernon is the town adjacent to mine, and like mine, is a fairly sleepy and stagnant typical Maine town with a mix of village, rural areas, woods, rich people, summer residents, working people, poor people. It annoys me when anything is depicted as quote-unquote rural, especially <laughs> the Boston Globe does at any main town that's not Portland or Bangor. For the Kennebec Journal to call Mount Vernon rural, it's got 1,700 people, so it's an average-sized Maine town. <laughs> it's a um, town And everything's Maine. rural. I mean, Maine's a rural So Anyway, town resident April Cantwell told WGME, it is scary. Everything that's happened around the world, and now this is happening in our little town, mm. just really makes you stop and think. You open up your door now and you don't know what you're going to walk out into, even in a little town like Mount Vernon. The Kennebec Journal quotes Zachary Williams, who lives across from Blackberry Road, but didn't know Brooke or her family. This is Mount Vernon, deep woods. You don't think anything like that would happen here. The story says, as the father of young children, Williams said, it makes me want to get security, get some cameras and lock up. I always do lock up. It makes me feel not comfortable. Something like <laughs> this is sad. Well, he's right that it's sad, but apparently the newspaper TV station, Williams Cantwell, and all those people who have lost their sense of security are unaware of what all our listeners are very aware of, that you are much less likely to be killed in Maine or anywhere else by a stranger mm. walking into your unlocked house yeah. than you are by someone in that house or someone that you let into the house because you know them. On Saturday, July 23rd, five days after Brooke was killed, Maine State Police announced they'd arrested a 15-year-old boy. And on Monday, mm -hmm. July 25th, they made his name public, Aiden Grant of Wayne, a town to the west of Mount Vernon. Grant was charged with murder and taken to Long Creek Youth Development Center in South Portland. Hmm. Grant was arraigned via Zoom that Monday, July 25th, and he entered a denial plea, which is a juvenile court plea that's the same thing as pleading not guilty. Police also said they found the missing car, the Chevy Impala in Wayne, though they haven't said if it was at his house, and that's what led them to arrest him. Aiden Grant and Brooke McLaughlin knew each other, police said. On his Facebook page, Grant said that they were in a relationship since February. Hmm. There was a photo reposted in the sun of what appears to be Grant and Brooke kissing on the 4th of July with fireworks overhead in the background. It's a fairly curated looking photo for two teenage kids, which I found interesting. Of course, much of the media has referred to him as her boyfriend. Uh. Police have classified it as a domestic. Case documents, including the police affidavit, have been sealed. And the cause of death hasn't been made public, as I mentioned. Brooke had turned 14 two weeks before she was killed and had just finished seventh grade at Marana Cook Community Hi. Middle School in nearby Reedfield. She was described in news accounts as a resilient student who was outspoken when she needed to be and deeply devoted to her friends and family. She also loved animals, including her bearded dragon lizard, Ziggy. Hmm. Rick Sorois... Dean of Students at the school told the Kennebec Journal, Brooke was just firm and confident in her beliefs. She'd sometimes ask to eat lunch in my office. 
We'd have casual conversation about life in general, and she was always a pleasure. She'd talk about trips to the pet store to get crickets or taking Ziggy to the vet, and I'd commend her on the bearded dragon and the great care she provided for it. Saroy said Brooke was super protective of her family. She had step-siblings in the same school system and seemed to be mature beyond her years. She would seek out Saroy's if anyone was mistreating any of her friends. Teachers at the school, according to the KJ story, described Brooke as feisty, independent, and loyal, a hard worker who wanted to succeed and who would seek out trusted adults for guidance. Shaylee Baker, who described Brooke as her best friend, told the KJ that Brooke was a bright young woman who often had a smile on her face, no matter the demons she was fighting. And all the stories are implications that there's been trouble. I know. I'm reading between the lines. It's like, right. No one really says what it Mm -hmm. was, though. Quote, she was always there for people when they needed her. And she always knew the right things to say to make people smile and laugh. She was goofy and fun. I know that if I was having a bad day, Brooke would be right there cheering me up. Aiden Grant had just finished his eighth grade at the same Mm. school. And the killing happened reportedly two days after his 15th birthday. Police have released no further information about him, but the son, the U.S. version of the son, managed to find someone they said was a close family friend of the McLaughlins, who also knows Grant's family, and she talked about it. Mm. Donna Walker told the son that Grant was someone Brooke trusted and felt safe with. She said Walker herself had only met Aiden Grant a couple of times, but sees his family on a regular basis. Quote, neither he nor any of his family have shown any type of aggression or anything like that. He was Hmm. polite, well-mannered. We're all kind of in shock and second-guessing everything now. I would have never dreamt that the kid could possibly do something like this. And she said his family is also in disbelief. Quote, it's one of those deals where it's like, oh my word, it's got to be something or somebody else. But obviously, when they make an arrest, they have to have evidence of some sort. She said that from what she'd heard, though she doesn't attribute it to anyone... The murder was premeditated and that Mm. Grant was upset because his family had ignored his birthday. Mm. Well, from what I understand, this kiddo that did this, it was their birthday and his family wasn't there to properly celebrate with him. So he did something to ensure that the day was never forgotten again. That hasn't been confirmed, but it's one of those things being thrown around, unquote. She said Brooke, being a friend and close to Aiden Grant, noticed he was upset and texted his mom to bring him home a cake that night. Quote, I wasn't there, so I don't know for sure, but it's Mm -hmm. my understanding that his family was supposed to be having some kind of gathering that evening for his birthday, unquote. And yes, I know we're guilty of it too, but it sounds like a rumor. And even if it does have some basis in fact... Obviously, there's more to this than him Ooh. being pissed off that nobody no recognizes his birthday. My guess is there were also red flags because, as we've talked about many times, people say, we never saw this coming. Yeah. It came out, and then you find out there's all these red flags. The Sun did say it contacted Maine State Police for accuracy of the claims, but apparently got no response. Hmm. About 500 people attended Brooke's funeral, according to Walker, which was held Sunday, July 24th. Walker said she knew Brooke the child's entire life. Quote, she'll always be my my little spitfire. She was Hmm. full of expressions and was never afraid to use her voice. And that's what I'm going to do from now on to keep advocating her life as she'd have done for anyone else. 
In another story, Walker told the son that after Brooke's death, she saw signs from Brooke that told her the child was at peace, including an angel in the yard she was mowing the day after Brooke was killed. It's not really clear what form this angel took. <laughs> the son, I don't know if their reporters are British or American, the ones that do the U.S. version, but I get sometimes there are things lost in the translation. She also said a sudden hailstorm out of nowhere when she was driving outside of Augusta on an otherwise sunny day was a sign that Brooke was sending her a signal. Okay. And I'm like, yeah, because yeah, you never get sudden hailstorms out of nowhere in Maine in July. <laughs> Aiden Grant was scheduled to appear in court again in September, but I couldn't find any more on it. So it's not clear to me if he's being tried as a juvenile. And so the reporting has stopped, although it seems to me there would have been a story about that or what's going on. As with a lot of these cases, the reporting just seemed to have stopped. But if anything more happens, we'll... The next murder was the same day as Brooke in Lewiston. That was a busy two days. Yeah. Well, summer, it's hot out. John Paquin, 20, of Massachusetts, was killed. Mark John Sinclair, 28, of Lewiston, was arrested and charged with murder. Shortly after 4 p.m., Maine State Police responded to reports of shots being fired at 30 House Street in Lewiston, mm. where they found John Paquin of Worcester, Mass., suffering from gunshot wounds. He later died. The cause was determined to be homicide, and Mark John Sinclair of Lewiston was arrested. The next homicide was August 6th in Mexico, Maine, which is um, Mexico in Western Maine near Rumford. Nicholas Triner, 20 of Mexico, was killed. Thomas Tellier, 52 of Mexico, was arrested and charged with murder. This is a domestic. Full disclosure, I know I know these people. Oh, you do? Okay. Mm -hmm. Tellier, Triner's stepfather told police that Triner woke up upset because the power in their home was out. I'm like, join the fucking club. And the two got into an argument after Triner got upset that the five-year-old they share the home with was hitting him. Tellier got his shotgun from his room because he was afraid of Triner and Triner was coming toward him. So he shot him, he told police. Triner's mother, Tellier's wife, told Channel 6 she didn't think it was self-defense. She was outside when the shooting happened. Quote, this was not self-defense. They had stopped arguing. Tom went into the bedroom and came out with the gun and shot him from down the hall, she said. And Nicholas said, stop, and he shot him again. Pumped that gun and he shot him again. She said her son could push people's buttons, but was not violent. She said the two men didn't have the best relationship, but those in the home had no need to fear Nicholas following the argument. And do you want and to say anything about the husband and wife? I worked with them for a few months at Home Depot. Eric, uh, Hannah's dad, worked with them for years. They met there. She was a cashier and he was, uh, he worked oh, in the department. Oh, one of those department. Home Depot loves. They had a cute little red-haired baby together. Both of them were very nice. I always got along really. He was one of those big main guy, jolly mm -hmm. type yep. of guy. But who knows? You live in a trailer with a bunch of people and oh, they have a gun. I was kind of surprised. Eric texted me when it happened and they said he was arrested and Eric said that's Tom from work. I was like, wow. I mean, it wasn't like I was shocked because it can happen. There was someone else that worked another store from me that I had met a couple of times that her husband killed her a few years ago. Oh, yeah, I remember that. There was somebody else who killed her husband that worked at Home Depot. I yeah, didn't know okay. her. She worked at another store. But, you know, it can happen, especially a situation like that. I'd never say, oh, I can't believe he would ever do that. Right. Something like and that. And there's a loaded gun. If there's not a loaded gun, maybe somebody punches somebody in the face, exactly. whatever. But there's a loaded gun. Somebody shoots somebody. But it's, sad. it's a sad it's situation. Sad. It is sad. 
Okay, on September 7th in Portland, Walter Omar, 31, in Portland, was killed. Amin Awas Muhammad, 38, in Massachusetts, was arrested and charged with murder. I can't even find someone who did a story on this. I can't find anything in any of the papers. There's a murder in Portland, the state's biggest city, and there's not one word that I could find in the newspaper. On October 3rd in Lemoyne, which is in Hancock County, Neil Salisbury, 71, of Lemoyne, was found dead in his shore road home by a friend. They haven't released the cause of death, but say the public isn't in danger. Mm-hmm. Though, from what I could find, there has been no arrest. So how do we know that, cops? Right. On October 5th in Orrington, mm-hmm. which is in Penobscot County, Lois Swanson, 89, mm. was killed by her husband, Russell mm. Swanson, 89, in the second murder-suicide of the year police wouldn't release any other information including the cause of death I, I, something gave me the impression at the time it was a gun but i couldn't find anything that indicated that hmm. usually in these murder suicides a gun is used on october 19th in lewiston nicholas blake 37 was killed arrested were barry zaller coffer 47 of lewiston and andrew stallings 36 of rumford they were both arrested and charged with murder Shortly after 7 p.m. that night, residents near the intersection of River and Oxford Streets reported hearing gunfire. A short time later, police swarmed the area and quickly began evacuating two floors at 171 Oxford Street near the end of River Street. Police found Blake dead inside a home at 70 River Street. They sealed the affidavit and won't release any other info. On November 17th in Cherryfield, which is in Hancock County, Matthew Adams, 36, of Whitneyville, was killed. It's an active investigation. Washington County deputies were dispatched to a report of a home invasion on Tenon Lane around 9.17 p.m. and found two people hurt and Adams dead. No cause of death has been released. The next day, Maine State Police reported the discovery of several destructive devices while searching a home at 35 Eastside Road in Addison. They said the public isn't in danger, but wouldn't release any more information, including the cause of death. I think we're to believe that the destructive devices somehow are connected to, Uh in Addison, are connected to the... It happened in Cherryfield. Matthew Adams was from Whitneyville. Okay. On November 18th in Portland, Bethany Kelly, 23 of Portland, was killed. Uh This is an active investigation. No cause of death has been given. The body of Bethany Kelly, an unhoused woman from Portland, was found just after 7.30 a.m. November 18th by people walking on Kennebec Street near Chestnut Street, Uh which I think is in Bayside. It's in Bayside, yeah. It's near near Whole Foods around that area. They've ruled it a homicide, and as I said, they won't say anything else, including cause. That area is near the soup kitchen where people hang out. On November 24th in Poland, Maine, Gabriel Damore, 38, of Poland, was killed. Justin Butterfield, 34, of Poland, was arrested and charged with murder. They were brothers. No cause of death was given, I don't think. May have been a stabbing. Androscoggin County deputies were called to the home just after 10.30 a.m. Thanksgiving Day for a disturbance complaint and found Damore's body. An autopsy determined the death was a homicide. Butterfield is expected to claim he wasn't in a legally responsible state of mind at the time of the crime. They were brothers. Butterfield supposedly had severe mental health issues and had lived with his brother. On November 29th in Portland, Tyler Flexen, 26 of Portland, was killed. 
Tristan Chamberlain, 21 of Portland, was arrested and charged with murder. Chamberlain shot Flexen in the area of, and this is going to sound familiar to you, Sherman and yeah, Mellon Street. to live right there. That's right. Police say Chamberlain turned himself, and it's interesting, he turned himself in at the York County Sheriff's Office when they're both from Portland, and it happened I think, in Portland and Cumberland Yeah, I was going to say, people were talking about it on next door. It was a while before he turned himself in because they were trying to find who did it. And another gun. And, and it wasn't reported yeah, very uh, much. And just like the other Portland one with the two other guys, just not a lot about it i know on december 11th in lewiston lucretia howard 25 was killed eddie massey of the lewiston area which tells me he may be quote-unquote unhoused was arrested and charged with murder and this is another domestic witnesses told police that massey had been arguing with howard before he shot her of course the headline said witnesses say argument led to murder unquote actually no an argument didn't lead to the murder a guy with a gun led to the murder and just because people are yelling doesn't even mean it's an argument but in any case there's not a lot of information about that except for they were in some kind of dating relationship and now she's dead december 19th in rumford Drew McKenna, 23, was killed, arrested with Shay McKenna, 27, and charged with manslaughter. Rumford Police Department responded to a domestic disturbance huh. complaint at a home on Route 2 where they found 23-year-old Drew McKenna had been shot. They arrested 27-year-old Shay McKenna for the shooting. That's all the information available. There's a lot of brother against brother and dad and stuff. I know, I know. Year. And we just heard about this one Oh, December 25th in Edgecombe, McKinsley Handrahan, three, Aww. was killed at 7.37 a.m. on Christmas morning. A 911 caller told police that a child was not breathing. She was taken to Miles Memorial Hospital in Damariscotta, where she was pronounced dead. The Maine State Police Major Crimes Unit was contacted, which is protocol in all child deaths in Maine. Detectives and evidence response technicians worked late into the night and all day Monday, according to the TV station that I forgot to write down that I got this from. An autopsy was conducted at the office of the chief medical examiner in Augusta on Monday, which was December 26. Mm -hmm. The cause and manner of death is being withheld at the request of the attorney general's office and the investigation. Oh, that's so sad. So that is... That was only three days ago, because today when we're recording, it's the 28th. Right. So that is a picture of Maine's murders this year. It's depressing. We had a lot this year. I mean, for a while, it's been 20 or under. And then some years where there's a lot, it's multiple, you know, somebody kills multiple people. Like that Bonifanti who killed the three people in 2020, but there was only one that had two people this year and the rest were... Okay, so you have uh, NNW? Yes, I do. I'm doing Three Pines, which is on Amazon Prime. It's a series based on the mystery book series by Louise Penny. Most of the books take place in the small Quebec village of Three Pines with its quirky residents. The main character of the books is Chief Inspector Armand Gamache of this, I think it's Surette de Quebec. We can't speak French. My French sucks. It's the provincial police force. Other characters are his team. Sergeant Eugene Guy Beauvoir and Sergeant Isabel Lacoste, as well as the local police, Yvette Nichol. Gonna kind of do a critique of both the books and the show, so whatever. 
bad reenactments, no points off. I'm going to use this category for how the books are adapted. There are some changes. I think the changes are good. The feel of the town is good and the shots are largely the same and the plots are largely the same as the books they're taken from. I've read most of the first dozen or so of her books, but I stopped after a while because they started to annoy me, which I will talk about later. Narrative cliches, one point off. The characters can be a bit cliche, Mm -hmm. although I find the issue less in the show with the exception of Ruth. Most of the issue is that they seem to be stock characters, the gay couple, the large sassy black woman, the quirky old lady with the foul mouth. On the show, having the actors give their interpretation of the characters tends to soften the edges of the caricature-ishness of the residents of Three Pines, but Ruth on the show is just too much. When I read the books, I pictured Ruth as an old woman who was relatively well-dressed and groomed and living in a regular 1800s type home that we have in this area of the country or of the of the continent. Um, I'm not sure why, if that was a description in the book or something, but I pictured her with short silver hair. And maybe that I had a customer at the time that, that I put in my mind. Yes, she does adopt a duck for a pet. But she's not a bag lady type like they have on the show. She's a well-known poet. She does have salty language and a sharp tongue. But she's not as unkempt and crazy as the character on the show. And I just think it's a caricature. On this episode with Peter's rich family, the family was such a bundle of stereotypes. I'm not even going to go into it. Racial gender obtuseness, half a point off. Wow, there is a thread going through all the episodes, a thread that is not in the book series, of a missing Indigenous woman. And there is a lot of attention to this timely story. The Village of Three Pines in both the book and show is woefully white. One major Black character, Myrna, and one Indigenous woman, B. There are other Indigenous characters, Isabel Lacoste, and the characters in the running storyline are indigenous and i did notice on the latest one pierre's wife is black and he's one of gamash's cop uh, friends yeah but you know they could have taken any major character any of them could have been black there's nothing that would prevent them from being another color or another Mm -hmm. ethnicity. Lack of good visuals, no points off. I read that the whole series was filmed in Quebec, so yay. Yeah, you can tell, too, by the buildings. You can tell it's not a soundstage or the Northwest. Right. It's very, it's refreshing. So no points off. Missing pieces, no points off. The mysteries are wrapped up pretty well. Of course, there will be pieces missing from the books. Every two episodes covers one book. But overall, I think the gist of each plot is covered well, as can be expected from a TV show. And it is kind of a traditional murder mystery it's better than some of the ones mom makes me watch like traditional character based father brown one and the nun one i guess oh god Mm. inaccuracy anachronisms one and a half points off wow as i said earlier the visuals are great you can tell it's quebec but in the books the village is called three pines because in the center of the village are three large pines. Okay, so we don't have redwoods here in the east, but we do have some huge pine trees. On the show, the three pines are really small, like the size of Christmas trees. Like, what the fuck? In Maine, New Hampshire, and Vermont, there are pine trees that are well over 100 feet tall. I looked it up. And this bugs me so much because I pictured three, like, of those really big soaring right. pines. Like, even near, like, Bowdoin College and stuff, right. they've got those big pines. Well, you figure, uh, too, the town, you know, uh, it's going to be more than 100, no 200 shit. years and old. No there's three little scraggly, right. ten, less than 10 foot tall, or maybe right. 10 foot, 12 foot right. tall. And they're kind of sparse looking, too. It's stupid. Yeah. Anyway, so that's why I'm taking a point and a half because it really, wow. really pisses me off. Wow. Storytelling, one point off. 
I'm going to use this category to talk about the casting. I think Alfred Molina is great as Gamache. Rossoff Sutherland as Jean-Guy isn't what I pictured, but I think he does a good job. Isabella Lacoste is not in all of the books, but I'm glad they made her regular character. And they also made her indigenous because in the book she is white, but kind of to help with that plot line. But mm-hmm. they still, and she's played by Ellie Maya Tailfeathers. I think a lot of the characters are miscast and I'm not going to go through all their names. Sorry, you can look on IMDb. The worst casting is the woman who plays Clara, the painter who's married to Peter, also a painter. And the book Clara is messy and unkempt. She has wild hair with paintbrushes stuck in it. She doesn't care about her appearance, etc. She's insecure about her art, but she still paints all the time. And she's insecure about her relationship with her husband. The woman who plays Clara is very mainstream in her dress and looks. And while her character is supposedly a painter, I don't know, she's just very boring. Her husband, Peter, in the books is classically handsome i always pictured him as a golden boy who's confident or he seems confident his character changes a little later in the series but in the books i pictured him as almost like a preppy ll bean type good looking classically and they're kind of mismatched and clara's you know this kind of she's pretty but she's just like messy and he's very like you know put together but myrna the Black woman is also miscast. I wasn't a fan of the character in the book anyway, but physically I pictured her like a heavy set woman, kind of like Lizzo. She's also more of a presence in the books than the show so far. And her character on the show is boring and kind of annoying. They all are kind of annoying. The rest of the casting is okay, but I will say the older women are in the book much more. There are a few older woman characters who are separate characters. They're not lumped together. They've been put on the back burner, except for Ruth, who is played by Claire Cole. Freshness, no points off. The series was adapted years ago by Canadian Broadcasting and was not well received due to the model-like looks of the cast. And I guess it was really soapy. That was in the 1990s. And I tried to find it on a Google search, but it seems to have disappeared off the face of the internet. But when I first started reading it, it was probably like 15, 20 years ago. I looked it up online and found pictures from it and people complaining about it. Although it's an adaptation, and it's been done before, I won't take off any points. Just the fact that it's actually filmed in Quebec Quebec makes it fresh. Repetition, no points off. Not a lot of extraneous crap and exposition, at least not for a TV show. There's always some of that stuff, but they do a pretty good job. Beating the drum, no points off. They could have easily beat the drum about the missing women subplot, but they really haven't. But at least it's giving some attention to something that needs attention. So my score is a six, Mm. but I think you should watch it if you like mystery dramas. I think it's pretty well done. Alfred Molina does a great job as Gamache. He has those sensitive eyes and he's empathetic. My main criticism, aside from the pine trees, is the townspeople seem too one-dimensional, like a group of characters rather than individuals. And they're like this group that's always like, ooh, we're always together and we're plotting against people. Some have been highlighted like B and Clara and Peter kind of were. So hopefully others will be fleshed out too. I've only watched the first eight. I think there's going to be two more for this season. I wanted to say about the books that has always annoyed me. And one of the reasons I stopped reading it, the people in the book who are artists, I know that Everyone has individual ways of thinking of things. And I don't think Louise Penny is a visual artist. And the way people think about art and the way it's described, it's hard for me to explain, but it's not 
my experience of how I think about art or how anyone I know thinks about art and things are not explained well enough. Like everyone's like, oh, that painting's great. That painting's great. Or, oh, that painting's bad. Everyone thinks this one painting's bad and everyone thinks this one, but they don't explain why they think that's just not the way it is. And also I read similar criticisms of her book where there was some computer thing that they were doing and people who were computer experts thought it was not realistic or explained well. So I don't think that this criticism will make sense to other people. It makes sense to me. But that's one of the reasons why it bothers me, even though, as you know, I hate reading art criticism and I hate reading writing about art. But I also feel like people who are artists are usually competitive with each other. They like to look at other people's art. If their art isn't something that they would do, it doesn't matter. They still appreciate it or like it. So it's hard for me to explain, but it's just started to really get, especially the last one I read, it just really got on my nerves. So, Mm. but I do like I really do like the show. Mom and I watch it together. Mm -hmm. I'm glad that somebody realized that it was important to film it in Quebec. Quebec Because honestly, I think that's a main part of the book is the location. And Quebec is beautiful. What Maine sticks right into Canada. Canada. But can I say, I won't go through the whole NNW, but can I give my opinion? Of course you can. (laughs) I became irritated with louise penny's books because you're bitter way faster than you did <laughs> because it's not that i'm unable to read books by extremely successful writers in the same genre i am but it's things that people make fun of me for bothering me but they're gonna bother me and well the biggest thing that bothered me is the fact that point of view changes in the middle of paragraphs and stuff with good writing point of mm-hmm. view should only change for scenes because it pulls readers out and you as readers may not be sitting there saying, oh, the point of view just changed and it pulled me out. It's confusing, I think. It's not just confusing, but it keeps you at more of a distance from being immersed in the writing than you should be. And I always found her characters cliche-y. The black woman was fat and sassy. Mm -hmm. The gay guys were the way that there were a lot of superficialities that are a little almost easier to take on the tv show well like i said the actors help flesh out the character with the show and to tell you the truth it was years ago i read a couple of her books and don't remember a lot more than some of those things that bothered me but the show i like it it's gonna sound like i don't and i probably look at fictional tv shows more through a writer's lens than an average viewer does. That's the only way I can explain some of the things that bothers me. It bothers me when you know who the murderer is going to be within 10 minutes. When there's a character you haven't seen before that has what should be an inconsequential part, but they're paying way too much attention to it. And I won't spoil it for people. And I texted you, this person is a murderer. The indigenous murder, missing girl, I knew almost immediately who had done it because... A similar thing. There's only one person it could have been. In books, like we discussed, it's It's easier in a book to flesh things out and make red herrings, but a good, good writing on a TV show, like little things like, I think it was the eighth episode I was watching last night, Lacoste and Jean Guy are chasing these people and he'd been drinking and he's driving and she's getting all upset. 
and the people they're chasing get into an accident. And Why I know it's you not. Give it, you're giving us spoilers. No, it's not. I know it's not a documentary, but two police officers would immediately go down and check the people, call for backup. And Jean Guy's like, oh, we, they can't be helped. They're dead. And then they stand there on the road having an argument. I know. That was not ridiculous. about those people, but about him driving, driving all this shit. So for the plot, that accident had to happen to put them into the situation and where she'd miss a phone call and it would ramp up the drama. And when you can see the mechanics of the show working, like they can do what cops would do at a scene like that and still have all that stuff happening. And I feel like it's, it's lazy writing. And I can't remember the book at all. If that even happened. Right. uh, That whole scene, but that bugged me too. Even with the indigenous, yes, Great for jumping on board and having an indigenous missing and murdered storyline and representing indigenous people in Canada. They're called First Nations, but they're all, all the indigenous people are just these overly sincere, concerned, stricken, and I'm not saying they shouldn't be but it's almost their characters in a way too. For, they're not there as just regular people. That's what I'm they're saying. They're all there for it's a purpose. Even yeah. Lacoste, you yes. feel is not there like, let's represent indigenous people yes. and have an indigenous cop. It's, we need her here so she can yes. be affected. Exactly. And we talked about that. I remember a long time ago on soap operas, I used to go on soap opera message mm-hmm. boards and talk. Someone said once, so-and-so can't be, she can't be a bad character because she's black. And someone got mad and it, it's like... She She's the only black character, so they can't. That's the problem. And I said, if you have like 15 black characters, then you can have someone bad. But like, right. I feel like the show, there's a lot of superficiality to it that doesn't have to be. There's a lot of superficiality to her books. And I don't think someone said, well, let's make a show that's superficial too. I just think the show is a vehicle. Mm -hmm. Her books are popular, but nobody's like, let's make this really awesome show. It, this is a vehicle for Louise Penny's popular stories. So it's like the writing is kind of an ends to a means rather than being artistic in itself. And things like the character of Nicole, who's the annoying local cop. It's like, even when she does stuff that's not annoying, people get annoyed at her. Like she was doing, they were talking, she was doing a cat's cradle. cradle. It's like, what people do stuff. Like, why are they getting annoyed? Because she's engaging in the conversation, but she's doing a cat's cradle. Don't have a character just be a buffoon. You need somebody who the readers or viewers respect. Yeah. To like this person for a certain yes, or to stick up for this person. So the readers or viewers can say, ah, okay, I can have positive feelings instead of her because she's just a caricature otherwise. And there are are a lot of little things that bug me. It's you can make them better without it affecting. It's like I said, with the diversity, you can make it better without it. Even Armand could have been black. Right. I mean, there's no reason why he can't. I, I just, it's just, you can see the mechanics of the yes. show where when you watch a show that's really well done or read a book you're caught up in it and you're not constantly thinking of the mechanics. yeah i understand what you're I saying think. but i still like it and enjoy it but i do like the fact like that people speak french yes because people do and i'll have an nnw next time because it'll be your turn to do an episode yeah i gotta think of something yeah liz is gonna be a guest sometime in the yeah. near future but not That'd next time so we should probably okay. go because it's getting late. Yeah. And we say goodbye to 2022. Ooh, happy New Year. Okay, Bye-bye. good night. Okay. So I was driving to 
work, I guess. I was trying to remember where I was going, I, why I was driving that way. But I was driving from our house into the old port. Um, and I was on 4th Street. But I can't remember why I was. It must have been afternoon. I probably came home to eat some food. Um, and I crossed Franklin Arterial. And the sun, you know, the sun is very low this time of year. Mm. And it was must have been early afternoon yeah. or sometime in the when the sun was, I don't know if it was afternoon or anyway, morning. I cannot remember. See, this so is why I witnesses, not... you know, witnesses for crimes. If somebody had been shot. Honey, what? Have you seen my money? Your money? Yeah. What money? $50. Your $50. Wow, where'd she get $50? I did I gave me? He gave you $50? Yeah. I thought he gave you $20. I thought that too. But for Christmas? Like, yeah. I don't know, honey, but it's not in here. Look, go look downstairs at all that junk. Close the door tightly, please. Yeah.